Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why my days of chasing sugar daddies are over. Or are they? I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. When I asked my Twitter followers who we should interview about global health and development, Karen Levy was the most requested guest for reasons that should become obvious in just a minute. Caitlin Tulloch replied to me that, quote, I must talk to at Karen in Kenya. She's the best. And I'm glad that Caitlin made that suggestion. Just before that, I wanted to let you know that 80,000 Hours itself is currently hiring for an operations specialist based in London. Our mission, obviously, is to get talented people working on the world's most pressing problems, and we expect to increase our staff count by about 50% over the course of 2022, and to hopefully continue scaling from there. We're looking for an operations specialist basically to help build the organization and the systems that we're going to need in order to support all of that growth. They run the team that manages our office, help scale our internal processes as we get bigger, and oversee a range of other projects according to their personal fit. The starting salary for someone who had one year of relevant experience would be about £58,000. And of course, we pay more for candidates who are more experienced and further into their careers. Applications for that one close on Sunday, April 3rd. If that sounds at all interesting, you can find a full job description and apply either on our job board at 80,000hours.org slash jobs or on our blog at 80,000hours.org slash latest. Okay, without further ado, here's Karen Levy. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Levy. Karen is a veteran of the global health and development scene, having held senior leadership roles at several organizations at the heart of the randomized evaluation revolution. She established Innovations for Poverty Action's country office in Kenya in 2006, in collaboration with recent Nobel Prize winning economist Michael Kramer, and served as the country director there for five years, during which the Kenya team grew from about 15 to over 200 personnel. During that era, Innovations for Poverty Action incubated a project called Deworm the World, which was founded in response to a randomized trial indicating that deworming had a major impact on kids' school performance and later labor market outcomes. Deworm the World aimed to massively scale the delivery of deworming tablets by working with governments to do school-based deworming, starting in Kenya. As part of that, Karen led a team providing technical and logistical support to senior health and education officials. And today, Kenya's school deworming program reaches over 6 million children a year and has inspired similar programs in many other countries. In 2014, she co-founded a new umbrella organization called Evidence Action, where she started the Evidence Action Beta team, which aimed to test and build a viable path to scale for promising evidence-based interventions. There, she worked on a new development program called No Lean Season, which was supported by GiveWell and went through Y Combinator's non-profit incubation process. After some further beta testing, No Lean Season was closed down in 2019, becoming one of very few development projects to voluntarily shut its doors. Since then, she has worked at her own strategic advisory firm for global health and development work, known as Fit for Purpose. Karen did her PhD in development planning at the University of London, has lived in Nairobi, Kenya for over 20 years, speaks fluent Swahili and tweets from her account at Karen in Kenya. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Karen. Thanks so much for inviting me. I hope we'll get to talk about lessons you learned being involved in scaling deworming, as well as testing a seasonal migration program. But first, as always, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, so these days I am working on a new organization called Fit for Purpose, which I started with my amazing co-founder, Patricia Mugambi-Ndegwa. And we help leaders in global health and development and philanthropy who care about evidence and data-driven decision-making to scale the impact of their work. And we're particularly focused on work at the intersection of evidence 
policy, and scale, and on helping evidence-based development partners work more effectively with governments and other policymakers. And we're really excited about this as a means towards, you know, really helping to turn up the volume substantially on the impact that we can have in lower middle-income countries. Nice. Okay. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll come back to Fit for Purpose and some of that consulting work later in the conversation. Let's talk now about some trends you mentioned that you're excited to be, uh, to be seeing going on at the moment. Yeah, first off, how has the availability of funding for effective altruist styled kind of effective altruist mentality uh, development projects been, been shifting in recent years? I think that there has never been a more exciting time to be working in the field of poverty alleviation and global health and development. And that is because we are finally starting to see a shift in which the market for good solutions and good programs is aligning, right? At the end of the day, organizations need to fund the work that they do. And so they have to respond to the preferences and the needs and the desires of funders. And so the more that funders are demanding evidence-based, impact-oriented programs, the more that people who care about doing that kind of work are able to do so. And so I think, you know, looking at the landscape now, we have an incredible and growing infrastructure of organizations that can generate evidence, Mm. um, that are more and more sophisticated about doing so alongside the people who will be using that evidence. We've got new organizations that are good at delivering impact, either themselves or in partnership with governments. And now more than ever, we have a real increase in the resources that can sort of unleash all of these trends. And so, you know, to me, this is, you know, what it should look like, right? There should be more resources available to do good interventions than there are good interventions because that's (laughs) what's going to make people, you know, make more of them. Um, And so I just think that, you know, it's a very, very exciting time to be doing the work we do. Yeah, I guess... So the big funder that I'm familiar with is GiveWell, which is working with, uh, I guess, Good Ventures and giving something like mm-hmm. half a billion dollars a year, I think. Are there other like major funders or, or maybe just that the mentality has spread to other foundations and, and governments and so it's more just all over the place these days? Well, certainly GiveWell inspired donors and, you know, Good Ventures and Open Philanthropy are, you know, really leading this and our major players in this and recent announcements that they've made about increasing funding over the next few years and beyond, I think, you know, has gone a long way to kind of changing the landscape. But it's not only them. I mean, I think there are other funders in this space. We, for a number of years now, have funders following this kind of find, test, scale model, Mm. Uh, development innovation ventures at USAID, um, the Global Innovation Fund, a new vehicle in France, Feed, that is, you know, based on that same model. We also have some, I think, new and exciting examples in kind of big bet philanthropy, Mm. Co-Impact, the Audacious Project, right? And so these are, you know, people in philanthropy who are thinking really boldly about you know, swinging big um, and really solving big problems and 
you know, doing so in, I think, you know, much more risk-seeking ways in a good way. Yeah, yeah. I know one methodological innovation that you're excited about at the moment are pre-policy plans, which I actually hadn't heard of these until you mentioned them. Yeah, could you explain for the audience what they are? Yeah, so the idea of a pre-policy plan is inspired by a pre-analysis plan, mm. which, you know, we know is common, but even, you know, becoming more and more typical in uh, social sciences. And this idea came up when I was doing some work with an organization in Botswana called Young Love. Now, Young Love is led by Noam Angrist and Moitsepi Machang, an incredible team of people that they lead in Botswana. And several years ago, they were replicating a study that had been done in Kenya many years earlier by Pascaline Dupas that provided relative risk information to adolescents in order to help them make better decisions about their sexual partners and reduce their vulnerability to HIV infection. And so this intervention had been tested in Kenya, had had some really impressive impacts on pregnancy, which was used as a proxy for unprotected sex at that time. And But then nothing kind of had been done with it after that. And mm. so Noam and Moitepi and their team had taken those results and adapted them to the local context in Botswana, sort of refreshed the intervention, built a new curriculum around it. But, you know, being an organization that cares about evidence, they decided to subject it to a new RCT in the Botswanan context before scaling it up. Yeah. This is the this is the no sugar intervention, right? Exactly. This is no uh, sugar. In, in, reference to, no sugar. in reference to sugar daddies. Sugar daddies. That's yeah. right. And the idea being that, you know, traditionally the options given to adolescent girls are you know, have sex and die or be abstinent. I mean, these are not realistic choices for people, okay? And, you know, I think the real brilliance behind Pascaline's study was empowering girls with information that allowed them to manage risk and explaining to them that older men are riskier and more likely to be HIV positive. And so by choosing to have relationships with younger partners, they could reduce their risk of HIV. And so that was the intervention. And I guess it's they decided to test it again, I guess, in this new context of this new era. And it's just as well that they did. Yeah. Do, do you want to explain why? Exactly. Now, of course, while the test was happening, we had no idea if it was going to work or not. And the Young Love team had done a really extraordinary job in developing relationships with government partners, right? They were doing this program in schools. They had gotten the Ministry of Education all excited about it. And ironically, you know, you, you often worry that if you find evidence that something works, no one's going to take it up and run with it. But there's also the converse problem, which is if you find something doesn't work, you don't want people to scale it up, mm. right? And so in discussing this dynamic, before the results of the study came out, we decided to work with the government partners to put together what we called a pre-policy plan. And so the idea was to game out in advance what will we do if the results are X? What will we do if the results are Y? And the reason that we did that is, you know, when you're thinking about a hypothetical future, it's very easy to 
assume that you're going to be rational, you know, that you're going to follow the evidence. But the reality is when you're standing there later and you've got some data, there is this enormous temptation you know, if it didn't work to say, oh, but, you know, it would have worked if it had just been different (laughs) or, you know, or vice versa. Right. And so it was creating a space in which there was nothing on the line and everyone could really think about in theory what they would do. Right. Mm. And so when you create an environment where everyone cares about evidence and we want to be evidence driven, it's very easy to get people to say, well, of course, we won't scale this up if it doesn't work. And of course, we will scale it up if it does. Yeah. And then sure enough, you know, when the results came in and they were, you know, very sadly disappointing, it was much easier to connect people to that mindset that they had been in beforehand. You know, people really liked the program. They wanted it to work. Mm. You know, it was an incredibly charismatic group of people doing this. And so everyone's first reaction was, oh, but let's do it anyway. Okay. Mm. But when we looked back at that pre-policy plan, it really helped to align people. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I think that the other thing that's really useful and important about a pre-policy planning process, which I then sort of subsequently used in other contexts, is it's a wonderful tool for aligning the research and policymaker perspectives, Mm. right? Very often, there's not enough communication up front. And what this can lead to is, you know, evidence not being useful because it's not available on time, Hmm. for example, or, you know, the results are not applicable to a population that policymakers are actually needing to make policy for. And Hmm. so a pre-policy plan, the idea is to get people to sit down in advance and say, and really line up. What are the questions we're asking? What are the outcomes we're measuring? When are we going to have this evidence? Alongside what decisions are being made as policymakers? What choices do they actually have? When and how are resources getting allocated, right? So that researchers can make their work relevant and responsive to the actual choices policymakers are making and vice versa. Yeah, so just to explain what happened with the no sugar intervention, I guess yeah. the, the idea the idea was well, these young women are potentially forming partnerships with men who are in their forties or fifties, and they don't realize that that's the group that is most likely to have HIV and so be, might be the most dangerous to sleep with. And the intervention was to inform young women about the the facts Correct. of who was most likely to, to to have HIV. When it was tested in this new context, they found that they were successfully, I think, convincing women that it was men in their forties who were most likely to have HIV, but their preferred partners and the people they were most likely to be forming partnerships with were people in their 20s. <laughs> and so, in fact, if they were responding to the the evidence in the most natural way, they would think, well, actually, the people I'm sleeping with now are the least dangerous. And actually, maybe I should do it more. I should be even more relaxed about it. And so it could, That's right. like the most straightforward, most likely implication would be that it would have the exact reverse effect of what was what was desired. That's right. And, you know, there was no real way to know that before yeah. it was tested. And, you know, as a result, Young Love and their government partners took the really courageous step of rolling it back, going Mm. back to the drawing board and, you know, trying new approaches. They've designed new interventions based on that evidence and are, you know, currently testing new alternatives to that. 
And they've also expanded into other new work. They are working with the Ministry of Education to expand teaching at the right level, which is another evidence-based intervention, you know, that's having a tremendous impact on, on literacy and numeracy. So, yeah, they took, you know, there are very few examples of this. And yeah. I think, you know, they're one of them. Yeah. In terms of pre-policy plans, which I guess is, you know, figuring out under what conditions would you want to scale it up and then what conditions would you hold steady, under what conditions would you cancel a program uh, ahead of time before you <laughs> before you get biased by what the results say you're getting actually are. It seems like in this case, the results were very clear cut and like quite devastating. It's interesting to me that even in this case, people kind of wanted to push on. It's so hard to let go of a program that even when the most likely outcome seems to be that you're causing harm. <laughs> it's, it's possible that this doing this, having this conversation ahead of time might have made the difference between <laughs> continuing the program and not. Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is that like most people want to do something, mm. right? And I can relate to that. Like I am action biased, right? So mm. all else equal, I'd rather do something than nothing, right? And so I understand where it comes from, right? And, you know, in this case... I think, you know, as you say, it was very clear cut, but often it's not, yeah. right? And so the other thing that a pre-policy plan can do is force some tough conversations about, well, how much impact is enough to make this worth doing, right? Or, you know, what if it's effective for some subpopulation, but not for another? These are all questions that are much easier to really think through and interrogate when you don't know the answer, yeah. um, right? And and so just in the very same way that a pre-analysis plan sort of forces a clarity of thought ex ante, I think there's a lot more that we can do in the global health and development space to be thinking about how we would use new information before we get it. Yeah, I guess doing a pre-analysis plan, which I guess for those who don't know in the audience, is kind of figuring out how you're going to analyze the data before you have the data. So it reduces the degrees of freedom you have and how you analyze it. And so it means it's harder for you to like, you know, accidentally, well, I guess either deliberately or more likely just accidentally put your thumb on the scale and cause yourself to get a particular result because that's what you want to hear. It, doing that is challenging though, because you're blind, you don't have the data yet, and yet you have to anticipate what the data might indicate and then figure out what you would do in each of those different situations. So it's something that's, I think it's become much more popular, but I think it's most popular within academia where people have the kind of technical expertise to actually make one. I guess in this case, it's also, I imagine, challenging to do a pre-policy plan because, again, you have to consider many different eventualities and how you would interpret those different hypothetical results. I suppose this is maybe something that academics can build up more experience with because this is this is really their wheelhouse. And then they can transfer that information into governments and into NGOs where perhaps they don't have quite as much experience with data analysis and this like level of, of data analysis. Well, remember that a lot of what a pre-policy plan is about is about what policy choices you have, hmm. right? And frankly, those are often more constrained than research choices, right. right? Your sort of intellectual freedom to explore data can be unlimited, but your actual real world options as a policymaker may not be so. And understanding what those constraints are can really influence how a study is designed. Now, I think it's super important to allow for unexpected lessons to be learned, to allow for, you know, new ideas to come to the table that or new options that you may not have thought about in advance. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
and I'll just make an example here, you know, if a policymaker can only do something at the county level and can't do it at a sub-county level, well, investing a lot of research energy into understanding heterogeneity within a county is like literally not decision relevant, right? And so you may still want to do that for other reasons, but it's much better to understand up front the ways in which a particular policymaker is going to be able to wield the lessons learned, mm. right? And so having those conversations, I think, can make for better research and can dramatically increase the likelihood that they will get used in the end. I think it can also help keep researchers accountable for delivering actionable evidence, right? And that's important. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying, I guess we're probably are all familiar with the situation where it's like we go and get some information and then it comes in one way and then we realize that actually that wasn't going to change the decision. <laughs> and I, like, That's right. it's interesting that this happened, it's not just at the individual level, this happens at the organizational level, at the team level. And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon that we can put lots of effort into something that ultimately turns out not to be decision relevant. I suppose this, this precludes that possibility. That's right. You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, evidence for decision making, but we don't often spend enough time learning about the decision making. Mm. You've been in the global health and development scene for a few decades now and have seen, I imagine, plenty of things in, in your time. If your game would be putting you on the spot, I would be excited to hear about any kind of common ideas or, or conventional wisdom in the field that you suspect might be misguided or, or perhaps is barking up the wrong tree in, in some way. Is that right? Sure. I'm uh, always happy to share my very unorthodox <laughs> views on some of these things. Um, yeah. So one of these concepts that I think we should interrogate a little bit is that of sustainability. And it's not that sustainability is bad, but I think that insisting on sustainability, making it a prerequisite of support for a particular program or policy can really distract us from what matters or what should matter. And in some ways, I think that overprivileging sustainability in assessing the effectiveness or cost effectiveness or the extent to which we should prioritize a particular intervention can in some ways be almost like the moral equivalent of, you know, to draw on Peter Singer's famous analogy of saying, well, a lot of kids drown in this pond. And since we don't have a plan to save them indefinitely into the future, we shouldn't save this one now. And similarly, you know, if I told you that for some reason we were going to have to say stop manufacturing a particular vaccine in five years, would we just stop giving that vaccine now? If that vaccine is truly effective and cost effective, well, then we should grab all of the impact that we can while we can. Yeah. People who are, who are in the development world will be familiar with this term, this kind of term of art of sustainability. But, but for those who aren't, yeah, do you want to kind of elaborate on what people mean when they say, you know, is a program sustainable? So what people usually mean is, how is this program going to continue after whatever initial funding is given has ceased? But unfortunately, I think what people often really are asking is, how are you going to create a perpetual motion machine, right? And, you know, in high school physics, I was taught that, you know, there's no such thing as perpetual motion. And so I sort of feel like we're kind of collectively trying to defy the laws of nature here. You know, a lot of the problems that we seek to solve 
are going to require long-term sustained investment. And so if a donor doesn't want or is not able to provide that support for a long period of time, that's fine. But then I think really the conversation we should have is, how are we going to shift the coverage of this to some other donor or some other source of funds? And not like, how are we going to put in a little money and then it's going to kind of create an engine that's going to then fund itself? From one point of view, for me, the supermarket is not a sustainable solution to the goal of feeding myself. Because if I stopped paying the supermarket, the supermarket would stop delivering me groceries, uh, regrettably. Exactly. But I'm okay with that because I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep paying for this thing because it's valuable for as long as I continue to want the, the service in return. I guess what you're saying is that's the case of the typical program in, in development is that if you want to keep delivering vaccines, you've got to pay for vaccines and then you've got to pay to get them into arms and, and, and so on. And when people talk about the sustainability of a program, they kind of mean how are we going to palm the cost of this program onto someone else? Like once we no longer want to be paying for it ourselves. That's right. And I think, you know, we should be thinking about how long do we think a particular program or a particular problem is going to require resources? Is this a permanent need, right? Is this something like basic education, which needs to be funded essentially indefinitely? Or is this something like deworming, which I don't want the Kenyan government to have to sustain a deworming program 20 years from now. I want them to not have a worm problem anymore, right? Is this something we think with sufficient investment now we could really move the needle on over the next five to 10 years? We may find that identifying a highly cost-effective solution, funding it reliably for 10 years, 15 years, is way more cost-effective than constantly starting and stopping and reprioritizing and dabbling in various pilot programs that never get continued because we kind of have a little bit of magical thinking that they're going to somehow just perpetuate themselves. Now, there are some examples where that can be done. There are some programs that can ultimately rely on market mechanisms. That's terrific, right? And that can be a highly leveraged investment for philanthropic funds. But a lot of the work that we do, a lot of the problems that we seek to solve require the provision of public goods, you know, goods and services that will not have market-based solutions that are just going to require ongoing investment. Well, I guess the natural thing that a lot of people might say, and that sometimes I have this intuition as well, is that a program that a nonprofit is delivering would be a very natural fit for the government to be providing, that this is the kind of thing that would naturally be paid out of taxes, delivered by a, a government that's elected. To what degree are you skeptical of the idea of you know, passing programs onto the government in time? And is that a reasonable interpretation of the sustainability term or, or question? So you're absolutely right that you know very often the most common approach to sustainability is to seek government funding or like the strategy is we're going to get this started and then we're going to hand it over to the government. And while I think that this is a good impulse, right, I do think that programs can and should work with and through governments. I think there are many aspects of working with and through governments other than funding that we need to prioritize. I think many of these programs, you know, governments are the agents of scale in society. And so we should be thinking very seriously and prioritizing government-led delivery, embedding programs in government policy, using government infrastructure. Those are all important. But the funding for some of these programs, 
above and beyond the cost of the infrastructure that the government brings to the table in the form of personnel or the existence of clinics or schools or whatever other sort of, you know, society level infrastructure that governments represent. In many ways, funding is the easiest thing for us to give and the hardest for resource constrained governments to provide. And so I often remind people when they say, oh, well, then the government will take this up, is that really what they're saying is they're just shifting the cost of the delivery from, say, the American taxpayer or from a wealthy philanthropist to the Kenyan taxpayer, right, who is ultimately responsible for the Kenyan government's budget. And because the costs of getting something up and running, embedding it in the system are relatively high, you know, we should be saying to governments, if we can get this up and running together, we'll help pay for some of those out-of-pocket costs for quite a long period of time. We're talking about resource-constrained governments that have lots of social challenges to face And the reality is they don't just have big pots of money sitting around, right? It's the equivalent of, you know, when we talk about give directly, like transferring money to poor people, right? We want to see a transfer of resources. And now there are highly impactful ways to do so. So I think that, like, if you have this model in your mind of, like, we're going to get it started and the government's going to take it over, what you need to believe for that to make sense is that governments could or would do it, but they just need convincing or capacity building. And I don't think this gives them enough credit, okay? I think mostly they need resources, right? And they need help in kind of getting things from zero to one. Technical assistance, support in building programs, advocating for them, this is all very valuable. But if we insist on only investing in that, and if we refuse to make contributions to the ongoing costs of delivery, well, then frankly, we're just prioritizing supporting the activities that fund us and our work, right? And that aren't actually truly sharing the burden of the costs of solving these problems in places that are poor. What do you mean by prioritizing things that fund us? Well, if you think about the budget for a program that's TA, technical assistance, right? So we're going to give advice to the government. They're going to deliver the program. Well, that money goes for expensive foreign experts. It goes for meetings and conferences. It goes for the kinds of things that essentially foreign organizations or even local nonprofits can provide. But it does not actually help share the costs of actually delivering the goods and services and solving the very problems that we seek to solve as a community. And so I would really like to see more funding with, through, and alongside governments and helping them to take a serious bite out of some of these problems. I want to see changes, you know, that show up in Max Roser's graphs on our world and data. And and we can do this. This is within our reach. You know, there are programs that are cheap and cost effective enough. We should be saying to governments, we got this. Okay, work with us. Not we're going to do this for you, but we're going to support this so that you can do it without having to constantly advocate for that money to go here instead of there year after year. I think the other thing is that there's not a lot of understanding about how unfungible a lot of government funding actually is. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, just just to explain that idea. Yeah, go ahead. I suppose that the concern might be that you know a donor ends up paying for a program that the government otherwise might have funded, and so what you've done effectively is like take something, you know, say a three million dollar program that the Kenyan government would have funded, you've paid for it yourself, and now the Kenyan government has three million dollars extra that it's going to spend on something, and you don't know, you don't, you don't know exactly what. It might be good or it might be ineffective, but because you've kind of just uh, the people, yeah, it's this technical term, funging. You've like just kind of funged money from one place to another. It's very hard to tell what kind of factual impact you've actually had. So sorry, go on. Yeah, so I think the the sort of logical fallacy there, there may be cases where that happens, okay, but I think the logical fallacy there lies in the reality that the vast proportion of government budgets are for recurrent costs and mostly for things like salaries, okay? So the amount of money that governments actually can, like, you know, have discretion over to put in one program or another is quite small. I see. Okay. It can be quite inflexible. And there are lots of different interests pulling on those funds. So it's not entirely clear to me that funds would just shift from one place to another. And I think there's a danger in, you know, you get a good enough person, someone who's good enough at advocacy work who could, you know, ramrod through a line item on a budget. Well, mm. What if the government said, okay, we're going to take that money from our malaria budget. Is that okay? <laughs> like, you know, so again, I think we do have to think about what the counterfactual would be, but the enormous value that governments bring to the table for programs like mm. this is the incredibly vast infrastructure they have. Governments are the instruments of scale in society, right? And so, the amount of funds that pay for activities, commodities, you know, things that make programs work, if it's a government-run program, like, for example, deworming often is, what they're already paying for, which is all of the personnel that do the program, okay, that's what matters. And so really what you're asking is for them to prioritize tasking their people on a particular task, I see. right? As opposed to shifting money. Because that's the asset that they uniquely have that you don't have. Correct. That's right. And creating an enabling policy environment in which programs like this can take place. And so, again, like this is not to like infantilize governments. You know, in my experience, governments and the civil servants that I have had the privilege of working with are way higher capacity than people think. They are Mm. working within very realistic constraints that are hard for people in the private sector to understand, right? And so, like, even just, you know, redirecting funds, you don't get to do that in a ministry. You know, you make a budget, you ask the Treasury for a budget, the Treasury will, you know, approve a certain percent and may not even disburse the entire set of funds by the end of the year. If you don't use those funds by the end of the year, they don't get carried over. You have to send them back to Treasury. So you could have something line itemed, but if you don't have the sort of human capacity to actually deliver the program, the funds won't get spent. So very often, you know, the constraints aren't what we think they are. Mm -hmm. And it's not like there's just this big pot of money and someone's like 
deciding yeah. and but they're you know, going from like yeah. best to worst project like from the top to bottom and then if you find one of them well it just like spills out into the next best project <laughs> if only it happened that way yeah, yeah, that's right, right. right it sounds like one thing you're saying is that there's a sufficient number of constraints here and maybe a sufficient almost amount maybe like randomness and what gets funded and doesn't that if you fund project x there's a pretty high chance that project x would not have happened if not for your money that it's not it's not the case that it would have been funded otherwise that's a re- that's that's the exception rather than the rule I think that if you ask the right questions and look carefully about what is happening in steady state, like when you engage in a particular place, then yes, absolutely. Yeah. What's another idea that's uh, coming to here that you think maybe people haven't haven't like 100% thought through? So I think another one is about participatoriness. Mm. Now, again, I think just like with sustainability, I get where it's coming from, right? And I think that wanting to involve people in programs and policies that affect their lives makes a lot of sense. Hmm. And I think that there are people like, for example, Tom Wine, who started the Dignity Project, is thinking about these kinds of issues in, in really sophisticated ways. But very often in practice, participatoryness ends up being like user fees or cost sharing ah. in ways that are not particularly empowering to people, right? Think about, you know, if if someone came along and said, we're going to fix the potholes on your street and we need everybody to show up with a shovel. Yeah. And, you know, and so there are these like myths that, you know, people will appreciate it more if they pay, help pay for it themselves. Or, you know, I, I feel like it's almost, it's like a little paternalistic and a little insulting. People deserve services. They should be provided to them. They shouldn't have to like participate. You know, they're citizens of countries that should be like doing these things for them, right? And so I think that that term often gets used in ways that's like cynical. And when you really actually get down to like, are you actually giving people decision-making authority, like not so much. Um, So yeah, I kind of feel like that's when we want to interrogate sometimes. Right, right, right. I guess, so participatory sounds good. It's a positively balanced word. What's the, what's the steel man of participatory? I suppose the idea, maybe it's coming from, well, for some people it's going to sound appealing because they'll have heard about development projects that were, you know, brought by someone in Washington, DC, thought they were a good idea and then they were imposed on people. And if only we'd listened more then we would have realized that it was a bad idea or if only we'd included the community. Or maybe that's, that's one reason that it sounds appealing. You're, You're looking, like maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, look, I don't always know what's best for me, okay? And I don't think people should have to know what's best for them all the time, right? Mm. And people will have different values, different things that they prioritize. I think that certainly when we're talking about health, education, quality infrastructure, you know, things that are about poverty alleviation and addressing some of the negative effects of poverty, I I think we should be thinking more about being accountable to people, Hmm. right? Like, I think the word should be accountability, right? Are we actually delivering to people effectively the goods and services that they deserve, right? And ideally, well, maybe maybe from that point of view, it would be ideal for them if they didn't have to participate, if it just happened. Exactly. That, they'd like That's to be able right. to complain if things are bad, but they don't want to have to show up with a shovel. That's right. Um, That's I, right. I, it's another one that's interesting because being participatory sounds good. I think if people were told that programs in their own life should be participatory, they might like raise an eyebrow. If you said that their provision of like healthcare should be participatory, maybe I'm like, no, I kind of want the National Healthcare Service to take care of this. <laughs> and kind of, the less they involve me, unless I am actually sick, That's like, right. the, the, the better. It shows an extraordinary lack of value of people's time, 
I think, Mm. you know. So again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have a voice in their local governments, you know, but these are, that's a different set of questions, right? And so participating in making decisions about leadership who then wield resources or, you know, make policies, absolutely. But you know, participatoriness in the provision of basic goods and services in society, I sort of feel like, you know, particularly poor people, we need to give them a break on that. Yeah, yeah. What is in general, I suppose, uh, feeling like you have to participate in something in order to make it go well is, is naturally you would construe as a burden <laughs> rather than a benefit, probably. But yeah. Uh, what's, a, what's another idea that you think people could think about a little bit more? So another concept that, you know, that we hear a lot about in international development is this notion of holistic approaches. Yeah. So, you know, we want to get at the root causes of a problem. We want to solve the whole problem. Again, I really relate to the desire to like really solve things. The problem with holisticness is, first of all, it's very hard to know in big complex packages what's actually working and what isn't, right? And so, you know, you're kind of throwing a whole bunch of things at something and some of them might be really good value for money and others may not. The other problem is that they're really expensive, okay? Mm. And so we tend to see a lot of holistic programs that never scale beyond a pilot level. And, you know, so they can be sort of heartwarming and nice demonstration projects, but they never really go anywhere. And, you know, the landscape is littered with, you know, what I call these perpetual pilot projects, which, you know, are doing wonderful things in 20 schools, say. Well, Mm. you know, Kenya alone, there are 25,000 primary schools. And so they all have holistic needs. Mm. Um, I think that it can be hard for people from wealthy countries and even wealthy people within poorer countries to realize like how much or how little money is actually spent on certain public goods. And that can really change your sense of what is realistic. So Mm -hmm. an example of this is I remember talking to an organization that was doing a school health program and you know, it was very holistic and it had all, you know, garden and training Mm. and, you know, it had a million bells and whistles and it was a lovely program. And they wanted to talk about, you know, how it could be scaled up and Mm. made quote sustainable. And I remember asking, well, what is the cost of this program per student per year? And they were like, oh, it's only $500 per student per year. Well, at the time, the entire national budget for education was 90 US dollars per student per year. That's for everything. Teacher salaries, school rooms, the whole nine yards. I think it's a bit higher now. It's maybe $140. Okay. Mm. So in what world is a $500 per student per year program realistic, right? And, you know, then we come back to this, oh, well, the government will take it up. Not yet. (laughs) No, they won't. And and they shouldn't. Okay. And, and what we want is to do things that are actually going to be cost effective so that if the government is spending money on it, or if anyone is spending money on it, we're actually seeing impact and returns on that investment. And so very often holistic programs, you know, as appealing as they may sound, just end up not delivering, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so holistic is another positively balanced word that that sounds good when you first hear it. I guess there's multiple different downsides to it, though. 
One is that it is in strong tension with focus. And again, we all know in our own lives and our own organizations that it's so much easier to really like get something done properly when you're focused on just like this one thing <laughs> and you can and you measure it and you think at the end of the week, have I like moved the <laughs> move the needle on this on this thing? Rather than having like 10, 20 different metrics that you're all trying to <laughs> try to improve, it's like very easy to get lost. So I suppose that's that's one problem. I guess another one you're just saying is that you end up doing 20 different things. It's quite expensive. Maybe like a few of them, uh, like the things that actually matter, that actually are helping people. But you, but because you're doing them more than once, you can't really figure out which ones those are. And so you, it, like improving the program is, is a lot more challenging. That's right. And I, I also think, you know, again, this can be connected to a desire to integrate things, to build government capacity. These are all worthy goals. Okay. But if you care about evidence, then you should care about requiring some proof about what actually moves the needle on that, Mm. right? And answering those questions might require different set of activities than like doing that through the guise of a school health program, for example. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, I think the smallpox elimination program and I think the ongoing, the, the polio elimination program, they're like the opposite of holistic. <laughs> they have this like one focus, they have this one job, and that is kind of all, all that they're trying to do. And as a result, there have been massive successes in a sense. And so people could be frustrated that they haven't done more other things, but maybe realistically, if they'd had goals of eliminating five different diseases, they might have eliminated none rather than kind of uh, one, 1. 1.8, 1.9. <laughs> I think those are great examples. And you know, one of the things that I'm most excited about when I think about programs like deworming is that they are now platforms upon which you could think about layering other things, right? Right, And so getting one thing at scale, working well in a cost-effective way, you now have like a scaffolding and an infrastructure on which you can then layer other things. And then when you do so, you have a chance to, you know, do that really big, you know, at massive scale. I think that we don't, spend enough time thinking about the value of those distribution networks. I think that that's undervalued. And I think we should often be thinking about interventions from the perspective of like, what is the last mile delivery mechanism? And how can we also use that to do other things rather than like starting from a set of problems? Like I, you know, again, this is a an area where I, a lot of people would disagree with me, but you know, there's a lot of talk in the neglected tropical disease space around integrating things. Okay. Mm. Integrating, dealing with neglected tropical diseases. And, you know, my answer to that is always like, the fact that they're all neglected is not a meaningful organizing principle, right? Mm. The fact that they all have like long, complicated (laughs) names is not an organizing principle. And I remember (laughs) having meetings with, you know, a group of experts here in Kenya and sort of saying like, okay, we're doing the school-based deworming program. What other neglected tropical diseases can we layer on top? Like really trying to lean into this, like, let's Mm. integrate. And we sort of went around the room and we like talked through each and every one. And it was like, all right, well, this one is in a different geographic location. And so, you know, this one's in dry areas and intestinal worms are in wet areas. So that doesn't work. And this one, you know, you need to treat adults and not children. And that one's children, not adults. But at the end of the day, even like despite our best efforts, there was really no way to leverage the school-based deworming platform for those particular diseases. 
Now, there were other things that you could leverage the deworming platform for, but you have to sort of start with the delivery and then work backwards, right? And so thinking about what should be integrated with what, I think sometimes requires a little bit of outside the box thinking. Right. So I guess what what you might start with there is you say, well, what we have built here is a system where once a year, a teacher gives a student a tablet. And we think like, what other tablet could they give them at the same time, maybe? That we exactly. Could, so, and, and, that's, and that's where you look for synergies. <laughs> is that's that right. And, you know, very often, like if someone is looking for, you know, what implementing partner should we work with if we want to do a deworming program? Well, I would rather work with an implementing partner that's delivering something to schools, even if it's not a health-related thing, Hmm. than a partner that's doing household, like, you know, door-to-door deworming through the health sector. It's a different delivery. What you need to be good at in order to do that is just different. And so the goal is not always what you need to have in common, right, in order to be good at something. If someone's got a great system in place for delivering something to schools, that's an infrastructure that I can build on top of. Yeah. I find it, maybe I'm flogging a dead horse here, but but I feel with all of these, if we considered them in the context of our own lives and our own projects, it becomes clearer what the issue is here. If if you're someone who like on a day-to-day basis goes to schools and then like tries to get all the students to take a pill and someone suggests like, maybe we should also work on malaria or this other thing, you you, like actually think about like, well, who's moving where? (laughs) Who's saying what to whom at what time? Uh, This like very nuts and bolts issue. And then you quickly see that actually (laughs) the synergies that you kind of hope would be there might not be there. I don't know. Maybe you could make malaria work, but there could be other things where they're actually, they, they don't sync up. But I can imagine like in the abstract, it sounds good. Like the less you know about the nuts and bolts, the more it all sounds like, oh, this is kind of the same, right? (laughs) Right. And, you know, look, it makes sense that people would sort of organize themselves by the problems they care about solving, right? And so it makes sense that like malaria people are going to want to talk to malaria people, right? But at the end of the day, impact is about execution and delivery, right? And What it takes to execute and deliver at scale is about that interface. It's about that last mile interface Mm -hmm. and what shape that takes. Is it clinics? Is it schools? Is it households? Is it urban areas? Is it rural areas, right? Is it government personnel? Is it some other personnel? What is that mechanism, right? And so... I think, you know, I would love to see a world where, you know, implementing organizations, development organizations come up and say, you know, we are problem agnostic, but what we focus on is being really good at household delivery or whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so use us as the vehicle for reaching households for whatever it is. And then, of course, the other part of the puzzle is, you know, is the pill effective, of Mm. course. But you could have 10 different effective pills, and if you have no way to get them to the households, then, like, what good is that, right? So really thinking carefully about delivery mechanisms, I think, is a missing piece. I mean, there are organizations out there that are great at it, but all too often they think about them as just, like, a means to solve the particular problem they're working on, and they might be leveraged in other really interesting ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've been we've been piling on a little bit here, but I guess sometimes projects should be should be passed on to government. Sometimes participation by the community is is appropriate. Sometimes there are lots of synergies sure. and problems, and they should be solved together. The thing is, I guess it's like people can get a little bit beguiled by how nice these concepts sound, <laughs> and maybe I just end up overrating them, basically, even though they have their place. That's right. Yeah. Okay, pushing on, as, as we'll get to, you've been part of the push towards kind of evidence and experimental-based development, which is, I think has been, a, I suppose I was, I was very young in the 90s, but my impression is that it's kind of been gaining steam since the 90s when like a lot of these experiments were, were first getting started. I feel I'm not part of it, but I'm kind of adjacent to it. My sense is that that approach has been through kind of a cycle of excitement and hope uh, and then everyone being extremely keen about it, maybe a little bit naively so. And then there was a bit of a reaction where some folks got disillusioned and people pointed out the weaknesses with it and like maybe things where it wasn't as suitable to tackle. Where are we now with how the development industry sees evidence-based development? Do people have a balanced appreciation of of both the strengths and weaknesses? Gosh, well, far be it for me to speak for the whole industry. But but (laughs) what I will say is, you know, I can understand where some of the disappointment comes from because, you know, evidence alone is not enough, right? Mm. Just as we've been discussing, you have to take that evidence, you have to translate it into a deliverable program, something that is scalable. You have to fund it. You have to get the right partners together. You have to test it at scale. You know, there's a lot of things that need to happen in order to actually translate results, you know, evidence into action. Hmm. And this takes time. Okay. And so I think part of what we're seeing now is programs that are based on the insights of studies done 10 years ago, 15 years ago, are now actually really starting to move the needle in different ways. So I I think we're learning more about what it takes to kind of take that journey. Um, Incentives for immunization is a really good example of this. Mm. You know, there's been evidence around this for a very long time, but, you know, you you can't just snap your fingers and say, like, here's a really great paper. And so why isn't just everybody doing this? The wheels of change, you know, move a little bit more slowly and you have to really align a big set of partners, including governments behind these ideas. But now we're seeing new incentives doing spectacular things in northern Nigeria. We've got IRD in Pakistan about to scale up an enormous incentives for immunization program, and it's starting to, you know, take off in other places as well. I think the other thing that we're seeing is we're getting more sophisticated about what it is that we actually learn from RCTs. It's not only like we're going to test this little package and if it works, thumbs up, and if it doesn't, thumbs down, and we're going to just like take this one little thing and deliver it. What we're starting to see is that we're learning about the mechanisms behind interventions. We're combining insights from different programs, different studies, and then using that to inform existing programs and new programs. And that's a much more subtle undertaking. And so I think that you know the problems that we seek to solve as a community are long-standing ones. There are no silver bullets. I you know, I think when you think about RCTs in medicine, right? And even there it can take a long time, okay? Mm. But there is this sense that like, okay, well when it works, it works. You mm. have a pill and you're done, okay? But we're talking about complex social problems. And, you know, even if it is a pill, like in the case of deworming, it's the actual delivery of it that is the challenge. You know, albendazole, deworming drugs have been around for decades, right? That wasn't the innovation. 
here, right? It was the school-based delivery mass drug administration approach and then the impacts that that had on children and the externalities, et cetera, that was the true insight there. So similarly, we've got insights from behavioral economics and the combination of studies together that's now, I think, informing practice. Yeah. The other thing that I think we're seeing is longer term and more meaningful partnerships, right? So even within my experience in this field, you know, in the early days, we would, you know, send a grad student in to go talk to the minister and see if they, like, we, I think we've gotten much more sophisticated about building deep, long-term partnerships with policymakers, co-creating research with them so that it can be more actionable, and then really walking alongside them as they take that journey towards, you know, building policies and programs. And so I guess, you know, I've always been a fan, but I hope that people who, you know, were skeptical will start to really see the impact that RCTs are having in global development mm. now and in the years to come. Yeah. Okay, th this next question might put you on a spot a fair bit. So uh, actually, I'm, I'm actually going to put it in the, in, in the mouth of an audience member who, uh, who submitted this one for you. Given your experience, what are two or three aid-related initiatives in Africa funded by Western governments or you know, others that you believe should be significantly curtailed or, or changed? So the first one that comes to mind are programs that require user fees. Mm. I think there's been a lot of work on whether or not paying for something actually increases adoption. And there was a wonderful paper, I think it was uh, Rachel Glenister and Marianne Bates and, and others did called The Price is Wrong, which looks at what happens when you put in place even small user fees. And, you know, the logic behind that always was, um, well, if people pay for something, they'll value it more. And what we've seen is that in practice, first of all, that that's not true, that people do value and use things even when they are given them for free, um, but that even small user fees can exclude the poorest and most marginalized, the people that you want to reach the most, and that the cost of levying those fees and collecting them can actually outweigh the value of those fees. So I think, you know, programs that have that, whether it's in the name of participatoriness or ownership or cost sharing or sustainability or whatever the justification may be, mm. I think that is very, very often misguided. Mm. And I would, you know, like to see people getting more free stuff, I think yeah. would be a good, a good thing. So that's one. Yeah. Is that sort of pay for service or like pay something for service quite common? Yes, I think it's, it is quite common. And yeah. I think sometimes it's, you know, in the very same way that there are people who think we shouldn't give poor people money because they'll use it on, you know, cigarettes or alcohol, mm. there is this sense that, you know, somehow people won't value something unless they pay for it themselves. Yeah. I also think it comes from pressure from donors who want to see cost sharing and want to see, you know, right. it's like taking a sustainability. Yeah, they want to leverage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
I guess that the story I'd heard on that one was that that was a common theory that it was better to charge people something so that they'd value it and be more likely to use it. But that that had just been tested like quite repeatedly and it had been demonstrated that that was outweighed by other factors, that it was much more important to get as high take up as you could. And even like small fees like had a huge influence on, on uptake. But it sounds like that hasn't flowed through to, to all of the different programs where it's potentially a relevant lesson. I think that many people have gotten that message, right? The mm. bed nets programs, I think, have really taken that. I think that it's had an enormous impact on how, you know, mosquito net distribution programs operate. Mm. But there's a whole world out there of programs that are not influenced by these things. And yeah. so, you know, I think that's that is one that I still unfortunately see a little bit too often. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about this in the context of the UK's vaccination rollout, or I guess the the US vaccination rollout. I mean, each dose, I think, depending on the vaccine, it costs between like $5 and $20, something like that. But I think people knew intuitively, as well as from the research, that even if you charge people $2 for a vaccine dose, you would get a big drop in participation relative to it being free. And given the like huge like social value of people having vaccinations, hundreds, thousands of dollars even, that would be insane. And I guess kind of the same the same principle applies here in other areas. Like if it's really valuable for someone to use something, then like charging them some nominal fee for it and like having half of your population drop out is a really bad move. That's right. I mean, well, and certainly in the case of vaccinations, I mean, not only should we not be charging people, but we should be incentivizing them, them yeah. right? We're paying them to actually get vaccinated. But yeah, I think, I mean, like, let's take chlorine as an example, right? So how do you get people to chlorinate their water if they don't have access to regularly chlorinated water? So, you know, the theory was, well, if you if people buy chlorine, then they're going to be more likely to use it. Okay. Well, it turns out that that's, first of all, it's really hard to get people to spend money on essentially preventative health types of goods. Okay. But also, you know, even if you give them chlorine for free, if it's sitting in a bottle in their house, it sort of goes up on the shelf and you may not even remember to use it. Whereas, you know, the Dispensers for Safe Water program run by Evidence Action places chlorine dispensers at the point of collection. And this makes the use of chlorine a social activity. And so you see other people doing it, hmm. right? And that reminds you to do it. it be, it's like part of the water collection process, right? And so that is what then generates uptake. Yeah. Even the deworming program, the researchers on that study tried introducing very, very small user fees for the deworming tablets and the demand dried up. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I guess the, the chlorinated water where you you provide the chlorine at the point where people are receiving the water at this common I guess it's wells or something like that, or I guess like uh Yeah, or springs. Springs that are that are shared. That raises another point in the design of a program that is potentially much easier to have something fixed at the source <laughs> where you only have to change one tap rather than fix it in everyone's house, get everyone to do their behavior individually, which is a lesson that, I mean, we would think it was pretty nuts if each of us had to sanitize our water at home based on like something that we had to go and buy <laughs> regularly in order to sanitize it. You just want to fix it at the source of the water, I, right. ideally. And kind of the, the higher up you can do that sort of thing, the more you reduce the amount that people have to think about something. And like modernity is all about having things happen automatically without having to think about them. That's right. And they are sort of considered public goods, you know, that just sort of come with living in a society that can provide that. And that's what I want to see us achieving collectively is, you know, more and more of those things become just like part of the landscape, you know, what, what you get. Okay. So that is a kind of program that potentially should be changed. 
Are there any promising funding opportunities that for some reason or other aren't already getting funded by by the big organizations? Anything that stands out? So there are a few areas that I think have a lot of potential or very promising that may become, you know, highly effective funding opportunities in the very near future. One of them is mental health. I think there are some really interesting and important new innovations in that space. And I think that, you know, when we look at just the magnitude of dallies around mental health problems, there are certainly a lot of work to be done there. Also, the more that we learn about how mental health challenges then have knock-on effects Mm. for other social issues that we care about, other health problems, economics. Um, I think there are going to be a lot of highly cost-effective opportunities in mental health coming up. Another area that I think is underinvested in at this point is education. And I think Hmm. partly that's because You know, we don't quite have the same tools yet that we do in health to be able to really measure and compare educational outcomes and to really get at in a very granular way, you know, what the costs are and then what the benefits are. However, there's a lot of really important work being done on this. There's, I think it's called LAYS, L-A-Y-S, being done by David Evans and and others in the education space. And so I think we're going to just learn more and more about the impact and the benefit of educational-oriented programs, and then the opportunities for funding there will increase. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about LAYS, which I think stands for Learning Adjusted Years of Schooling, in the interview with Rachel Glenister a couple of couple of years ago. And I guess it seems like a very useful innovation to create this standard measure, which is going to have problems, but nonetheless, for you sort of have some kind of standard measure of gain in actual education outcomes to compare across potentially quite different kinds of interventions and get some sense of where they stand relative to one another. Absolutely. I also think that there will be some interesting opportunities in the education space because it's an area where governments are spending a lot of money, mostly in the form of teacher salaries. Mm. And so small interventions that can even make marginal improvements in educational outcomes are going to end up being really good value for money. Andy Zeitlin and some of his colleagues at Georgetown have been doing some work in Rwanda looking at teacher incentives and connecting educational outcomes to parts of teacher pay. And I think that has an enormous potential to be highly, highly cost effective because it leverages the investments that the Rwandan government is already making in teacher salaries Mm. and will help align the incentives of those teachers towards improving educational outcomes. Nice. Yeah, while we're talking about ways the global development world could potentially be better, let's maybe go through some concerns you've expressed over the years about the incentives that people and organizations within the industry are actually face and how they're not always perfectly aligned with with maximizing cost effectiveness. I mean, of course, any industry or organization has some of these uh, these sorts of issues. I feel slightly bad picking on you know the development sector or the nonprofit sector or the government sector as if they as if they're unique in this way. Of course, every organization, as we know, has its quirks uh, and ways in which like people aren't don't have the ideal incentives potentially. But yeah, what's an example of a problematic incentive faced by people working in development that you think is is important one to keep in mind? So I have been thinking a lot recently about how the structure of the business model of NGOs that work in development is really counterproductive in many ways to optimizing impact and cost effectiveness. 
We've come a long way as an industry in understanding that, you know, the percentage of overhead is not what matters, right? Like, I think, you know, that is an issue that's been extensively debated. And, you know, most people who kind of think in, you know, forward thinking ways about this get it that it doesn't matter if it's 7% or 27%. What matters is, are you having impact? Mm. At the same time, as long as the business model is essentially that you're funding an organization based on what's pretty much a flat tax on your throughput, think about think about the perverse incentives that that creates in terms of efficiency, for example. So a big threat to an NGO's budget is underspending. Well, I would love NGOs to underspend as long as they're holding their impact constant, right? And so- just to pause, what do you mean by um, the kind of fundraising based on a tax? Do you mean that it's like the the organization overseeing it can kind of only justify taking some cut of the total total amount being spent on the program as a whole? And so kind of the more they find a way to actually spend on, on something like whether it's good value for money or not, then that kind of justifies having the people at the head office, basically. An overhead rate is a tax, right? right? It's a flat rate. Hmm. So it doesn't matter if that rate is 7% or 17% or 27%. What it means is that as the leader of an NGO, the way that you fund your core costs is by being bigger, not in terms of your impact, but in terms of your financial throughput. I see. And so so I think this really creates some suboptimal decision-making on the part of NGO leaders who you know, they have to keep the lights on, right? Mm. And so if you are funding your core operations by taking a percentage of the money that you spend on charitable aims, well, then your goal is to just be spending more and more on Mm. charitable aims, right? And that's not always consistent with what's best in terms of impact. So like I had a conversation the other day with the executive director of a partner organization that I work with now through Fit for Purpose. And they're working in several different countries. And he was asking if we could help him out if they wanted to do some work in Kenya. Now, if I was a typical NGO and my operating model, my business model was that for every dollar I put through my organization, I get a certain percentage to pay for my overhead costs. Mm. Well, subtly, my incentive is to want to say to him, oh, yes, we can do that for you. Run the money through me. Mm. Because that's not my business model, I can say to him, look, if it makes sense, if we're the best people to do this, sure. But if not, actually, it might be better for me to introduce you to another organization that might serve you better in that case, right? So I think that, you know, I feel for leaders of NGOs. I have been Mm. in that position Mm. for much of my career. And it becomes very hard to separate the program as a goal from the organization as a goal. And we want these organizations to exist. I want there to be robust, healthy, vibrant NGOs that are great places for people to work. I don't want those people to have to make decisions about how much money they're spending or how much money they're raising based on, you know, what they need to clear Mm. in order to pay their finance team in a particular year. Interesting. So 
So the idea here is if you have some kind of central nonprofit organization that's running a whole lot of different programs on the ground, if they find a way to cut costs in those programs or they find a program that they think is not a great use of funding and they cut it, then it makes their overhead, well, either it makes their overhead ratio look worse or if basically donors have agreed to like fund some top-up percentage on top of the cost of the program delivery to fund the, the central organization, then now they basically the budget is cut, <laughs> even though they've actually exactly. made a decision to, to use the funding more more responsibly. That's right. Is that kind of how, how donors actually fund the overhead costs these days? That they just do, they, they basically impose it as a tax on top of the delivery? Very often it is a flat percentage, huh. okay? Many, many donors will have a cap, hmm. right? And so then there's all these games about, you know, what's a direct cost, what's an indirect cost, so that you can, you know, make it come under a certain threshold. And, you know, I would really like to see both NGOs and the donors that support them look really clearly at the absolute numbers. Like, what does it cost to run this organization? What are the fully loaded costs, Mm -hmm. right? What do we want the capacity of this organization to be? And what is it going to take in order to fund that? How else can we empower NGOs to tell us when something is not working Mm -hmm. and shut it down or redirect funds in a different way or say, look, We actually think we should wait a year. There's an election. This is going to be much more effective. You don't have the luxury of doing that when, you know, your core costs are covered by a flat rate percentage. I think that we're moving in that direction. We do see more examples of donors covering core costs. But again, I think we've got to find new and creative ways as an industry to hold NGOs accountable for outcomes, but at the same time, not give them these kind of weird, moral hazardy, perverse yeah. incentive types of situations. Yeah. It reminds me of, interestingly, of a model of fixed utility regulation that I encountered when I was an economist working in the, in the government. So very often with like an electricity, electricity grid, like the actual cables that connect to people's houses to deliver electricity, the government wants to privatize it, hoping that a private company might be able to run it more efficiently. But then how would you get a private company? Like, how do you reimburse them? Because there's no competitive market for, for the utility. There's no, there's no other cables that people could go to. So what they do, I think, is this cost plus thing where they say, well, we'll cover all of the costs that you've incurred, plus some rate of profit, like 7% and all of that, which obviously then creates the incentive that the only way the utility can make more money is just to find some way to spend more money, building up more and more infrastructure. So then you have to have a regulator that approves everything that they purchase in order to prevent them from inflating their costs. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting, it's, it's an interesting tangle that you've created trying to privatize it. It's a tough problem, yeah. right? And, and, you know, I would love to see NGOs, you know, have some upside risk, mm. right? If they're able to do a project under budget and exceed the expectations with impact, well, they should be able to buy like nicer office chairs, <laughs> not fewer, right? In, in other words, I think that the definition of success needs to not be like yeah. mutually exclusive with survival as an organization. I think there's a lot of good thinking happening around this in the results-based financing space. Instiglio is an organization that I think is doing some really creative thinking around this. Mm. I would love to see more NGOs that are you know, really confident in the fact that they can deliver something for a certain price, you know, bid for things, deliver, and if they can come in under budget, they get to keep the balance. Like, I think that would be a wonderful model. I would love to see more organizations willing to share that risk with donors. Yeah. Okay, so that's a perverse incentive that donors are creating for other people. Uh, do you have an example of a perverse incentive that, that donors maybe face themselves? So 
I mean, there are lots of examples here. So I definitely think that there is an inherent incentive when you are working for a donor organization to want to come up with new ideas, new strategies, new programs, right? If you kind of have like a set it and forget it, if you have a portfolio of programs that are working and they're delivering impact and the decision is really, should we keep funding this yes or no? Well, what's the job for your program officer then, right? I remember in the early days when we were starting Evidence Action, at one point we made a trip and and visited, I don't know, five or six donors in the UK. And I think every single one of them was in the middle of a strategy refresh. And I remember feeling like, all right, well, when you guys all figure out what you want to support, let me know. You know, the donors are in many ways, the client, right? They pay for the work and NGOs can only do work that they can get funding for. And so I think donors sometimes underestimate the extent to which changes in strategy can really create incredible inefficiencies for organizations as they scramble to follow whatever it is that donors are funding. I think that we could probably all do a lot more good collectively if we made much longer term bets that were a little bit less sexy. You stuck with it. Yeah, where you stuck with things over time. Yeah. The new staff member causing a strategy or causing necessarily a review of the entire strategy. It's always so ambiguous. Like, do we need to do a strategy review or like, should we change the strategy? These questions are unanswerable. <laughs> well, I guess sometimes you, sometimes you really know that things are going wrong, but very often you're like, could it be better? Could, should we like review all of this stuff? It's like almost always a plausible thing that you could do. <laughs> and then uh, potentially the, the chaos that you're creating downstream or the fact that your current strategy has problems, but your new strategy will probably have like other similarly important problems is hard to see. That's right. And especially when, if you are a donor, you are having your impact through others, right? And so you really have to think about how, what it is you're funding or even how you communicate about what you're funding then essentially creates the market for a particular set of programs that are going to then respond to the availability of funding. Yeah, I've heard you say before that kind of people should reassess how good it is to be boring. (laughs) That uh, boring is underrated. Like boring is potentially its own like strategy that other people aren't following where you can get an edge by by trying not to be sexy. Do you want to to elaborate on that? Yeah. So it is inherently more interesting to fund innovation, to invent new things, to catalyze things. When we think about the problems that we're trying to solve in society – we don't want people to have to think about these things every day, right? It should be the background noise to life. And also, I would say that the unit costs of delivering a particular good or service go down enormously the more boring it is to deliver it, right? If you can make something so mundane that it doesn't really require a lot of thinking, well, suddenly that is actually incredibly scalable, And so I think there are a lot of innovations that are on the shelf that are not yet delivered at the scale and scope that they might be. And maybe this is a partial answer to your previous question, which is like, what else should we be funding? And I think we should probably be funding more of what we're already doing before we take on 10 new things that we can't fulfill their full promise because there aren't enough resources to do that yet. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, there's a, a natural case in favor of innovation, which is that, well, maybe you'll find some new drug that's incredible, that will, that will transform things, or maybe you'll find some way to dramatically improve education, as you were saying, and the education budget so large that a 10% increase, increase in efficiency would be a massive deal. So I guess it's not the case that innovation isn't a good, a good idea. But I suppose... We need both. Yeah, yeah. I guess one, one thing to keep in mind is that because the, like, the total budget available for all of these development projects globally isn't that large. And the amount that might go into delivering your innovation might not be that large either. Well, one has to keep in mind the ratio between like how much are we spending on innovation and improving things versus like what is the plausible like maximum budget that this is going to attract in coming decades. And just like ensuring that that ratio makes makes coherent sense. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I mean, if you really think about it from an investment perspective, you know, you, you, sure, you want to spend a little bit on trying a lot of things, but then you want to cull really quickly, right? So that you can then hone in on the things that are really viable, you know, that'll have legs. I would also say that every time there's an innovation that is not meeting its potential for scale, we're losing really important opportunities to learn how to select the next innovation, right? Because you learn a lot about what is viable, what is feasible, what is scalable, what is impactful. You know, things change when they move from pilot to scale. One of my favorite images, I wish I had thought of it myself, was on some deck I saw somewhere, some presentation. The image was a baby. It was talking about what is scaling, right? A human growing up is not a baby turning into a bigger baby. It's a baby turning into an adult. And an adult is a different thing than a baby, right? And so it's the same thing with programs. We've learned a lot about innovation, and we should keep doing that. And it's incredibly important that that gets funded. But in the absence of really solid paths to scale for viable ideas, we're missing the opportunity to learn which innovations will work better and also learn how to scale them more effectively. We're also losing the opportunity to layer new innovations on top of robust delivery platforms that, that previous innovations have put in place. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's wind back maybe to the early 2000s. As I mentioned in the intro, you, you were pretty central to the big push in global health to get hundreds of millions of kids uh, dewormed on, on a regular basis. It sounds like it's a, it's a really exciting story that might be able to offer up a whole lot of lessons on how to get things done in global health today, as well as, well as just more generally. And it's a story I only, I've only heard little fragments of. Yeah, so if it's already all right with you, I'd be uh, keen, to, keen to go through it in a, in a little bit of detail. How did you end up establishing the Innovations for Poverty Action or IPA uh, office in Kenya? So I will say it was, you know, one of these incredibly lucky accidents that really just, you know, takes your life in a different direction. I had just come back to Kenya from the UK. I was working on my PhD and I was doing a little bit of consulting for a few different organizations. And someone suggested that I call an acquaintance of mine, a guy named Chip Berry, who was the regional director of an organization called ICS. International Child Support. This was a Dutch organization that worked in Western Kenya doing a range of programs, and they had a few research projects that they were also working on. And so Chip needed some help doing some strategic planning. And the issue at the time was 
they were doing these studies with these professors in the U.S. who I had never heard of at the time. And over the years, the research projects had grown incredibly and were sort of kind of starting to overwhelm their core programs. And there were some issues. There were some debates about how they were sharing costs and you know, some challenges. And so he had asked me to come in and help them do a strategic refresh. So I came in and I looked through the work that they were doing. And I had just, you know, finished a master's and started a PhD in development planning. And I had spent many years on the coast in Kenya, starting an NGO and doing some community-based work. And so I was really kind of what you, I think, pretty classic, like traditional development worker, right? And you know, I've always sort of felt good about the work I was doing, but to be honest, had questions about whether we were really having any deep impact and why were these projects all really small. So when I started to look through the work that this NGO was doing in Western Kenya, I saw some of the working papers that these researchers had started to develop, one of which was the deworming paper, which was done by Michael Kramer and Ted Miguel based on this RCT they had done in and around Busia doing school-based deworming. When was this? What, what year? So this was in 2005 that I was doing this consultancy and the study had been done in like the late 90s. And I don't, I don't, it may have just been published at that point, but I, I think I really was seeing a working paper. Now, I am not an economist. And so, I mean, I didn't understand a lot of the details of the paper, but I got the gist of what they were talking about, and I saw that this group of people had this rigorous approach to measuring the impact of these programs in a way that I had never seen before. And so I remember saying to Chip, okay, this is the most exciting stuff I've seen in a really long time, and not only should you not, like, get rid of these research projects, like you should double down on this. We should really, you know, make a strategic plan that's about centering everything on these research projects. You know, forget that other stuff that you guys are doing. <laughs> Let's do this. And I remember saying at one point, gosh, we could even deworm all of Nairobi, like as if that's, you know, like who could think even bigger than that, right? So I we put together, and in the course of that work, I met Michael and Esther Duflo and Pascaline Dupont and Ted Miguel and others who were coming to Kenya regularly and, you know, listened to them talk about their work and helped to try and negotiate some arrangements about how they were going to share costs. And I put together this presentation that Chip was going to then bring to the Netherlands to present to the board and you know, I remember making all of these charts going up and to the right about how this was all going to grow and be spectacular. So he goes off to the to the Netherlands and he presents this to the board and he comes back. The board of the organization you were you'd been working for. Yes, the ICS uh, board of directors in the Netherlands. And he comes back to Nairobi and he calls me in. And I said, so how did it go? And she says, well, he says they didn't buy it and I'm not allowed to hire you anymore. And I remember just being so deflated, okay? And, you know, this was yeah. relatively early in my career. And I remember thinking, like, oh, gosh, like, maybe one shouldn't speak truth to power. I don't know. You know, you really start to question yourself, okay? So I said, okay, you know, I'm sorry, <laughs> right? And then I sort of went off and, and did some other things. Sure enough, a couple months later, Chip called me. And, I, you know, he really understood and valued these research projects. He was torn himself. 
So he calls me back a couple months later and he says, so you remember that guy, Michael Kramer, that you met during this project? I said, of course, yes. He's going to call you. I said, okay, you know, all right. So Michael calls me and it had essentially transpired that this NGO had decided that they did not want anything to do with these research projects anymore. And they wanted to focus on, you know, child sponsorship, the the work that they had been doing. And, you know, I remember one of the phrases, we don't want to study people. We just want to help them. (laughs) It's one or the other. It's one or the other, Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. That was their call to make. Okay. And so Michael called me and, you know, I think he had seen that I appreciated the work that they were trying to do, that I saw the value, that I was excited about it, and also that I had some experience with organizational development in Kenya, having started an NGO, and that had some management experience from that perspective. And so he basically asked me to take on what at the time was a six-day consultancy to try and help him figure out what to do with these projects. They had a few research projects that were ongoing. These were RCTs running in Western Kenya through this organization. So now what were they going to do with these research projects? Should they find another organization to work with? Should they start their own? If they start their own, should it be based in Kenya? Should it be based in the U.S.? So to sort of help him figure out the pros and cons of each of these options to help with this transition. And then I remember almost at the very end of the phone call, he says, oh, and by the way, you should probably also talk to Dean Carlin at Yale. He started this thing called IPA. They're working in Peru and the Philippines. And, you know, maybe he'll have something to say. Now, you know, I thought Dean Carlin was a dean at Yale. So, (laughs) you know, I'm looking through the Yale uh, you know, the website, like trying to find someone, a dean named Professor Carlin. So that's how I met Dean. Okay. And I learned about what the work that they were doing and how they were building the capacity to run RCTs in these other countries. And so, you know, I came back to Michael after the end of these six days and said to him, okay, well, here are my suggestions. You know, if you know and trust this guy, Dean, they are doing exactly the same kind of work that you are. You could share back office uh, functions and you should go ahead and open up the Kenya branch. And if not that, do this. If not that, you know, I gave him a sort of series of options. And that was it. I mean, to me, I was like, job done, right? That's my six days. (laughs) Right. I've done my work. Okay. And so Michael, you know, being Michael, the amazing person he is, he uh, calls me back a couple of days later and says, so um, could you um, do that? <laughs> and I said, do what, Michael? He says, you know, help us get the IPA office set up. So I said, sure. And again, was working as a consultant. I said, let me figure out what you guys need to do. Submitted some registration papers. And I said, all right, well, you're going to need a bank account. And so I wanted to go and talk to some banks about getting them an account. And of course, if you walk into a bank and say, well, I'm a consultant, they don't want to talk to you, right? You need to be a representative of the organization. And so I called Dean and I was like, look, I'm not really precious about this, but <laughs> you need to give me a title. Like, I'm just going to get 50 business cards printed. I just need to be able to like have some conversations on your behalf. And so he says, I don't know, what do you want to call yourself? I said, it's whatever you think is best. He said, well, how about country director? So oh, that sounds quite nice. Okay. <laughs> and that's literally how I became the country director of IPA Kenya. And 
It was the most incredible stroke of luck. I ended up with a front row seat and a participatory role in just the most extraordinary and inspiring movement of thinkers and doers that I could have dreamed of. And I spent many years learning from and working with some of the very best minds in this field and participating in the execution of these RCTs. Yeah. So this was a time, I guess, when RCTs were getting a lot of traction. People were very excited about it. A lot of really talented people were joining the field. Yeah. Tell us about that, about like, you know, the mood in the room. So I absolutely feel like there was this sense that we were onto something really exciting, right? And you know, many of the people who came through Busia in those days as graduate students, as research assistants, are now, you know, professors and practitioners in their own right. And, you know, at the same time, we couldn't have dreamed that it would have had the impact on the field beyond research. I mean, I remember early conversations with Michael and asking him, how big a machine are we building here? How many studies do you think will be running five years from now, 10 years from now. And I remember him saying at one point, you know, two or three, maybe, you know. (laughs) Um, So I don't think any of us realized, you know, quite how big it would become. Other thing that I think was important about those early days is because the idea was still very new, it wasn't as easy or obvious to have implementing partners to work with. And so in a lot of cases, we were actually delivering the programs that we were studying. And as a result, learned a lot about program design and delivery. Now, ideally, you want to be working with partners who are doing the delivery and those roles are really separated. But I think there were a lot of advantages to kind of really diving in and getting our hands dirty and doing a lot of experimentation as we went. Okay, so so I guess... Doing it yourself slowed things down. But at the same time, I mean, you you really learned exactly what was going right and what was going wrong. And I guess it puts you in a much better position to manage projects like that in future. That's right. The other thing is that a randomized control trial needs to be tightly controlled, right? So you need to be able to ensure that the randomization is done well. You need to make sure, you know, for early stage RCTs where you're trying to test a proof of concept, You don't want to be testing, if something doesn't work, you don't want to be asking, well, did it not work because it's not a viable idea or did it not work because it wasn't well delivered? So you actually want to have quite tight control over the quality of delivery so you can really isolate the research questions that you want to answer. Of course, as things grow, that's exactly the opposite. You want to take your hands off the wheel and see, does this work when it is delivered as it would be in steady state? But that's a question further along the value chain, really. Yeah. So it sounds like kind of this whole thing was to some extent inspired by that famous deworming paper, which was, I think, so it was done in Kenya. I, it was Miguel Kramer was one of the authors. I th- there were some others as well. But that's what prompted the creation of IPA and this uh, setting things up in, in Kenya. Is that right? It was certainly, so de- the deworming study was certainly one of the earliest and one of the 
studies that then inspired lots of other work. But it certainly wasn't the only one. There were a number of studies that were being done in Kenya, but also elsewhere, in Peru, in the Philippines, in Ghana. The network of PIs, of researchers that were building the methodology, exploring different sectors of development, was a much, much broader effort that was taking place during that time. Okay. So we're about to dive into this story of uh, scaling deworming efforts. I think there'll be some listeners who'll be very familiar with deworming, like what it's all about, how much it costs, uh, what, what, what problem it's trying to solve. But, but some other people would have uh, read a whole lot about deworming, which would be very understandable. So maybe let's do a bit of a refresher of the basics. What problem is deworming designed to address? So about 2 billion people in the world live in places where they are susceptible to regular chronic intestinal worm infections. And what these infections do is they sap your energy, they can make you anemic, they can make you more susceptible to other diseases. And intestinal worm infections are particularly intense in children and are therefore a particular problem for kids. They compromise children's nutritional quality at a time when they need that nutrition most. And so unlike acute diseases, which are very obvious and, you know, clearly need to be addressed, worm infections are often considered a symptom of childhood. They're so pervasive that people often don't really think of them as something that needs to be addressed. I was talking to a parent here in, here in London the other day, and she was saying, well, obviously, it's like my child just always has colds, <laughs> just constantly has colds. And I, was like, I, I always have colds because they're going to daycare they're, with other kids. They have no sense of hygiene. I guess it was, it's basically the same, the same idea. Yes, but imagine that having that cold then meant that you, particularly if you're already nutritionally compromised, like now that's making that even worse and it's going on and on and on. And so you're missing lots of school, right? And so the cumulative effects of worm infections in individuals and populations over time can really be extremely costly. Now, at the same time, there is this very simple solution, which is a deworming tablet. That technology has existed for a very long time, but because it's not an acute disease, right, and so perhaps not a priority, and also because the diagnosis of having worms is more complicated and expensive than the treatment, deworming had not really been a regular part of health packages. So an interesting thing is that uh, this tablet costs like under 50 cents per person. Uh, but I guess you're saying it didn't fit naturally within the healthcare system where you would like have a serious problem and you'd go and talk to a doctor and the doctor would diagnose you and then the doctor would treat you. Basically, you kind of want to skip all of that because the pill costs under 50 cents <laughs> and it doesn't really cause any serious side effects anyway. So you may as well just take the pill if you th- like on a regular basis, even if you don't know if you have worms. But the health profession doesn't uh, have like much of a system for delivering medicine of that kind. Well, certainly, remember, we're talking about places where going to doctors, getting diagnoses, (laughs) you know, is not happening as we want it to be anyway, right? But absolutely, a big insight around deworming is the value of mass drug administration, right? Where if you have prevalence rates over a certain level in a particular area, it just makes more sense to treat everybody than it does to figure out individually who to treat. But even that was not sort of new knowledge. 
I think what was the real innovation and the the new insight from this randomized control trial that Michael and Ted did, first of all, it used the school infrastructure to target children. So traditionally, mass drug administration had been a door-to-door activity. I think coverage rates are lower. Health facilities are less pervasive than schools. You're much more likely to live near a school than a clinic. And as primary school enrollment has been increasing over time, well, School is where the kids are, right? So the most efficient and easy way to treat all the kids is to do it at school. The other lesson I think that was really important was about the positive externalities, right? It's very easy to actually underestimate the impact of deworming if you're only looking at the kids that you treat if you're treating individuals. So A bunch of kids not having worms is actually good for the kids around them, even those who aren't treated, because they're less likely to be infected with worms from their peers, right? And so they found that the impacts were much larger than one might expect. The other thing that they saw was the impact on school attendance, right? It was a new thing to think of this as an education intervention, not just a health intervention. And so all of those factors together really helped to make an argument for the cost effectiveness of school-based mass drug administration for worms. Yeah. So uh, this paper, as I understand it, was uh, or this or this RCT of giving deworming drugs to all of these kids in these schools. It was looking at school attendance. It was looking at like maybe test performance. And then they also did some follow up later on when people were working to see whether their earnings had been increased in the, in the long run. And basically, the, the results were like kind of extraordinarily positive. So positive that I think people always would have suspected that if you went and studied at some more in other places and other times, that you you, you probably wouldn't get a a repeat of something so amazing. But nonetheless, like very exciting. So that a lot of people wanted to get on board and, and and test this again and and scale it up. The really incredible work that. Ted Miguel and his colleagues have done is in following up on this cohort of kids who are now adults, right? And so this is how he's been able to observe these wage effects so many years later. That's a, you know, very unusual and special longitudinal look at the impact of an intervention like this, a seemingly very small thing that has very large knock-on effects over time. Yeah, we'll stick up uh, a link to uh, a new 2021 paper, which uh, Kramer and some other co-authors published, where they are following up with these kids uh, decades later. Uh, I guess that would be in their early 30s or something like that. And they've got, I think, records of their income for over 80% of them. So they're, uh, and, and they're finding that it seems like receiving deworming, uh, being randomized into the group that got deworming tablets is still increasing their <laughs> their income by a pretty large amount amount today. That's right. So we've had something like 20 years since, I guess, this this trial was like first wrapped up or people might have had a sense that uh, that the results were going to be very positive. Do you have an idea of like at a full global level, out of all of the 2 billion people who are vulnerable to intestinal parasites of this kind, like roughly how many now are getting deworming tablets on a regular basis who otherwise might not have if not for this for this work? So it is in the hundreds of millions. So of the 2 billion people who live in, you know, intestinal worm endemic areas, It's about 800 million children that we're talking about. And India alone is now deworming, I think, you know, 200 million children every year. So the numbers are really vast. And more excitingly, we are now starting to see 
evidence of a reduction in prevalence of infections and also in the intensity of those infections. So we're potentially like helping to eliminate them in the population more generally because people are getting these tablets sufficiently often that the chain of transmission is getting weakened. That's right. And, you know, the goal is to essentially eliminate worms as a public health problem, right? So you may not eradicate worms completely, but you can get infection rates down to a point where it is not a pervasive public health problem. So, yeah, some listeners uh, will have heard there's been this active debate during the 2010s between, well, I guess among economists and among health folks, and also, I guess, to some extent between economists and, and health folks about how much benefit is provided uh, by, by deworming kids, because there's been so many follow-up studies to this um, Miguel Kramer uh, study. This episode isn't primarily about that issue. We, if we want to do that, we should get like someone on who's, who's embedded in the like really technical questions of the, of the papers here. But a lot of listeners will have heard of that debate. So yeah, in brief, do you have any kind of overall take on that? I hate this expression, but it's <laughs> because it is just like a polite disagreement among academics academics, but people have called this the worm wars, uh, I guess, for fun. (laughs) The worm wars. So look, I think it's great to be skeptical of results. And I think we should always be open to critique and, you know, uh, updating our priors as we reassess evidence. At the same time, I think my point of view on this is very consistent with GiveWells, which to me makes a lot of sense. Even if you think that there's a very small chance that this that the results are accurate or that they are of you know the the magnitude that we think they are, this is still an incredibly good buy. I see things from the point of view of like what's relevant to real decision makers, right? And if someone comes along and says, "Look, I have a way better thing for you to do instead," I, I'm certainly open to changing my mind, but. Deworming programs are incredibly inexpensive. They create a platform upon which you can layer other interventions in really valuable ways. We're seeing a reduction in the prevalence of worms. The individual diagnosis of worms is extremely expensive and doesn't seem like a good use of time. Like when I think about like looking at the evidence, how should policymakers like make a call about this? To me, you always end up on the side of let's do these programs. Yeah, it makes sense. So kind of, yeah, the argument there is an expected value one that we're not sure exactly what the size of the effect is, but there's a high chance that it's like a small positive effect, some chance that it's a really large positive effect. And it costs so little that like from in terms of like expected benefits over expected costs, it, uh, it still looks really excellent. That's right. When you think about the deworming program in Kenya, I mean, I think it costs somewhere around $2 million a year. Okay. I mean, this is like the line item for security for some programs in some countries, right? I wish that we subjected some of those programs to this to a fraction of the scrutiny that we have subjected to deworming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think lots of people might agree that this is above the bar to do. I suppose it's almost a victim of its own success where people were so excited that they started saying that this is like the best thing. And and that's a that's a much more specific and intense claim. And so it's natural that people might respond to that and say, like, well, is it? It's hard, hard to be sure about that. I don't think anyone serious ever thought that deworming was a silver bullet, that it was going to solve everything, that it was the only thing we need to do, or even the best thing to do. Is it a really good value for money, worthwhile thing to do? For me, the answer to that is clearly yes. Okay, we'll stick up some links to some Wormwars uh, blog posts and I guess uh, give us opinion for people who want to explore that one more. 
let's push on and talk about Deworm the World and the you know, efforts that you were engaged in to actually reach millions and millions of children in Kenya and, and then demonstrate something that could be used elsewhere as well. Yeah, what did you and your colleagues concretely do to try to, try to get more people dewormed? Yeah, so I was working as the IPA country director and I was always very interested in how are we going to take the results of these studies and actually influence policy with them? And, you know, that was very much... Michael and Ted and Esther's agenda as well. And so the Deworm the World initiative was actually started by Michael and Esther at the Young Global Leaders Forum, at the World Economic Forum, um, I believe in 2007, where they were on a committee looking at education and suggested that that committee take on deworming as their agenda. And that is how Deworm the World was founded. And the decision was made to start in Kenya because the study had been done here. It was clearly a problem here. And we had people on the ground who were interested in seeing it happen. And so I started to engage with people in the ministries of education and health to explore the possibilities of doing a deworming program here. Now, I was not the first one to have these conversations. There were people at PCD, the Partnership for Child Development in London, who had been working on this issue, people here at the World Bank who were aware of the study findings and had actually put some money in for a deworming program into a budget of education sector support that was coming to the Kenyan government. So there were a lot of pieces that were kind of falling into place, but at the same time, there wasn't yet a deworming program. And, you know, governments have a lot of priorities. They have a lot of things that they need to do. And there was and is a school health unit within the Ministry of Education and school health unit in the Ministry of Health. They had a very long agenda. And there was no one person who woke up in the morning and like their sole agenda was to make sure that there was a deworming program in Kenya. And so that was sort of became what I woke up in the morning (laughs) caring about. And so, you know, we had a lot to start with, right? There was the experience of this study, right? So people who had actually done the school-based deworming program in the 75 schools that had been part of the study. There were also people at Kemri, the Kenya Medical Research Institute, who had done a pilot program um, in a district called Mwea. They had developed a teacher training manual. So there were some like basic bits and pieces that were the parts of a program. But they were small. I mean, that pilot was, I don't know, maybe 40 schools. And so what we did was we sat down with partners in the government to think about and design what would it look like to do this program at national scale. And there were a number of different pieces that needed to come together. First of all, we needed to ensure that the policy and regulatory environment was in place that would allow for this. There was a school health policy that was still in draft form that hadn't been finalized. So we worked with the government to help make sure that that got finalized. So this is kind of changing the regulations of what the school is permitted to do such that this isn't allowed or actively encouraged. Yeah. So first of all, the deworming, school-based deworming, mass drug administration in schools needs to be part of the policy. Teachers need to be allowed to disperse a drug in schools, 
right? You need to be able to store deworming tablets at a school. There's all kinds of rules that need to exist in order to be able to do this at a massive scale. And so we worked through that. But alongside that, we had to figure out, like, what's the delivery model? Okay, so we have, you know, a few million deworming tablets sitting in a warehouse. How do you get from that to several million children around the country, like, actually getting dewormed? And so I remember sitting at a whiteboard one of my very favorite places to be, with a group of people from Kemri and from the teams that had done this pilot program in Wea. And I was asking them about, like, what were the different steps that they had undertaken? Because the whole process of scaling is about standardizing what the process is, right? And so I remember asking, well, how many times do you need to go to each school? And of course, the answer to that question is always, it depends, right? <laughs> when you're doing a pilot, you know, and they said, well, some teachers, they got it. So we had we only went there once. Okay. And other places we had to go. Well, this is not a recipe. That's fine when you're doing it in 40 schools, but not when you're wanting to do it in 8,000 schools. And so when we really pushed up against that and really pulled out what were the essential elements of this program that you needed it turned out that actually the answer to that question was zero. You don't need to visit the school at all. What you can do is bring together two teachers from a set of schools, train them, distribute the drugs and all of the forms and everything to them, and that made that last mile an order of magnitude more efficient. And so we built a cascade that would deliver training, drugs, forms, et cetera, from the center down to the school level in a series of steps in a way that we hoped would maximize efficiency, but would maintain fidelity to design. So you were there having conversations with people who'd done this kind of a test scale up to 40s, 40 schools. Were you just going ahead and kind of designing how this scheme would work at a national level before, you know, the Department of Education or the Department of Health had said, yes, we're, we're going to do it? Uh, was, was this kind of part of making the, the, the pitch to them that it was viable? It was absolutely a collaborative effort. I think there was a lot of interest in doing it, right? And we worked on generating and maintaining that political will. Michael and Esther were able to get Raila Odinga, who was the deputy president at the time, to make a speech at Davos claiming support for the program. People could see the value of it. But even interest and political will doesn't necessarily translate to boots on the ground and all of those specific plans. And so sometimes it was things as simple as developing a high-quality Excel macro-enabled spreadsheet that made it really easy to calculate what it was going to cost in each district depending on attributes of that particular district, you know, how many schools there were, how many kids, etc. This really made it viable for people in the ministry to take it on. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so one change you made when you're going from 40 schools to thousands and thousands of schools is you just bring like one teacher from every school together to do training for a day or two or something like that. Or I guess maybe you do it at the province level, and then they all go back and, and do it. Were there any other major changes that you made uh, as part of uh, thinking about how you would reach, you know, 100 times as many places? Absolutely. So first of all, we had to design this overall cascade 
in a really thoughtful way so that you, you know, if you have too many steps, there could be too much erosion and too much time can go by as things move along. On the other hand, if there are too few steps, like the the growth is too big in each step, right? So you've got too many people in the room, you can't train them all, right? So we did some experimentation with that. I will say, you know, in the early years of the program, we delivered it in a series of waves, right? So we had a group of master trainers that would like set off the program in one particular area and then move on to the next. And so it was kind of like a, you know, a cascade happening in stages over time. Now, this is not actually an optimal way to do a program like this. Big programs like this often work better as a big one-off campaign where you have a deworming day. But In order to get to that point, you need to try it a few times in order to get it right. And so doing some successive waves allowed for that sort of adaptation in a way that like doing something once annually doesn't necessarily allow for. The other kinds of things that we had to think about and that are very different than when you're doing a small program is what kinds of community sensitization activities are needed? How are we going to make sure that the community knows that this is happening, that the drugs are free, that they're safe, that they should bring their kids to school that day, that even kids that are not enrolled in school can show up and get treated for free? Thinking about it as a whole package is a very different prospect other thing is you want to plan it such that you don't need to adapt to changes in the context, right? You want to make something that is going to work as best as it can in the very most places, right? And so again, you know, that required a little bit of trial and error um, and some learning over time. Yeah. Okay, where, where was the majority of the actual work happening here among the deworming folks? It seems like, so you've got to distribute ideally 6 million pills. I guess most of the actual hours being put in is being put in, I guess, by teachers and administrators at, at the schools. So for you, is it you've got to procure the drugs, you've got to do training for one person from, from each school, you've got to like make sure that the drugs are getting out to, the, to places in time. Where's the actual uh, you know, full-time equivalents ending up here? So... What the Deworm the World team did and still does is support the government as they deliver the program. So certainly in the beginning, a lot of that work was around design, right? And we're not even training the teachers, right? We're training the people who are training the people who are, you know, there's several steps in the cascade. But also it's not even us doing the training, it's bringing together experts from the ministries of health and education who can do that. Putting in place the protocols, figuring out how do you figure out how many tablets need to go to each school? Are they packaged in increments that make sense so that they can be delivered efficiently? The other thing that we were doing and that the Deworm the World Initiative, which is now at Evidence Action, still does is really support the monitoring and evaluation of the program. And so, you know, there are a number of different ways that that program is monitored. There is process monitoring, which looks at are the activities happening with sufficient quality and fidelity to design. There's also monitoring of the administrative data that's generated by the program. So, you know, are the coverage numbers that we're seeing, like, do they seem accurate? And then there was work being done by Kemri to actually look at 
worm prevalence rates before and after treatment to see were we seeing a reduction in prevalence and intensity? Were kids actually getting dewormed? And so we really worked on putting together a monitoring and evaluation approach that really looked at the whole theory of change and helped to make sure that things were happening along the way. Especially in the early days, that generated a lot of lessons that were fed directly back into program design. Yeah. What's an example of that? Yeah. So an example of that is what we learned was the thing that really made a difference about whether or not kids would get dewormed Once the school had the training and they had the tablets, they did pretty well. The big danger was them missing out on going to that training and getting the drugs in the first place. And we found that although all schools were eligible to participate, private schools were getting left out, not for any reason or like malicious purpose, but because District local level education officers were less likely to have up-to-date lists of private schools in their area, right? And so when they were drawing up their plans for trainings and sending out the invitations, it was just more likely that they would get missed, right? And so we built into the process a list-making exercise, right? And so just putting a little bit of effort into improving the quality and the comprehensiveness of the school lists at that time was the district level. Administrative boundaries have since changed, but you know that really made a huge difference in increasing the impact. You know, there were other things that we found that weren't really effective, so we stopped doing them. You know, certain forms of community sensitization like didn't really seem to actually make it more likely that people were knowing what was going on. So we like stopped doing those things. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't that many people with objections to this. Most people were just happy to go along. Well, you still have to be careful about educating people about it. So here's a mistake that I made where, you know, you, you say the wrong thing and you can really have negative effects. So in the very first year, you know, we were physically helping to box up the deworming drugs at the national level and we're putting them in cartons and I'm, you know, sitting there with a Sharpie writing pills on all of these boxes, right? And someone comes in and says, what are you doing? So I'm writing pills. You said, you can't call these pills. You know, pills in this context often means contraception. Oh, right. Okay. And so, you know, the the right word is tab tablets. Okay. So, you know, small things like that can make a really, really big difference. And community perception matters a lot. People can be skeptical of being handed drugs by the government. Are they trying <laughs> to do yeah. something to us? You've used yeah. this expression, uh, mass drug administration, a couple of times. And I, I, I think if you were doing mass drug administration at UK schools, one probably would come up with a different expression for that. Slightly what? different set of expectations. What are you worried about? We're just doing mass drug administration to children. <laughs> That's right. It's responsible <laughs> public right. health policy. Sorry. Okay, go on. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, all kinds of things like that, you know, really need to be worked out. And, you know, also helping to manage procurement, right? There are certain kinds of expenditures and activities that governments are really good at doing. And then there are others that are just structurally more difficult. And so I think that's another important way that partners can help. So procurement is a really good example. You don't want it to be too easy for governments to procure things, right? But the process can take a really long time. And so we were able to come in and, for example, you know, 
get a whole bunch of training manuals printed in a way that was much more nimble and flexible and allowed for the fact that we were still figuring out exactly what needed to be in that training manual long after any procurement <laughs> deadline you know, would have passed. So another thing that's difficult for governments and is a particular problem for a program like deworming is it's really hard for line ministries to collaborate. And this is a big challenge that governments face. You know, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education each have their own budgets. You can't send money from one ministry to the other. So if the Ministry of Education, in theory, wanted the Ministry of Health to pay for something, they would have to send the money back up to Treasury, would have to get reallocated back down. You know, so there were lots of times where us supporting a particular activity just unlocked the ability for it to happen. Made it much easier. Okay. That's right. That's right. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, we actually we, we talked about this issue of um, procurement being extremely s- slow in, the, in in some countries with with Maha Raymond in the episode there where they were studying that and finding it was just a massive problem. The government was paying often like many multiples of the of the true price or something because people were so scared that it would take them months or years to get paid if if ever. So basically, you were just buying all of the stuff ahead of time, and then you'd be like, "Well, the Kenyan government is good for it; they'll pay us at some point, but we're just going to like buy it and run ahead." We bought it for the program. Oh, I see. Right, I mean, right, that right. was part of what we provided to the program. Yeah, right. I see. And it was better for the government to use the funding that they had for, for things, things that, you that couldn't buy. they were able to spend money on. Right. Just winding back a second. So you kind of come up with a proposal for how things could potentially run, how this program could go, that people are generally supportive. But did you have to do any work to persuade specific people within the ministries to like make this a priority and to allocate staff to making it happen? Absolutely. And we did a lot of work at the technical level, at the permanent secretary and minister level to generate and maintain support for this program. We invited people to do deworming. We created media opportunities for them so that they would, you know, get the credit that they deserved for supporting a program like this. You know, helping partners in government that you're working with look good to their superiors and help them achieve their goals is a really effective and important way to kind of help unlock (laughs) action (laughs) energy around things. Yeah, absolutely. And again, no one's saying deworming is a bad thing. These are people who are working really hard and getting pulled in a million directions and have a lot of priorities and are really underfunded. And so helping to make it easier to get these things to happen is just really important. Yeah. What were some of the other motivations for your collaborators in, in government? So, so one is to get good PR to do a good job and have people see that you're doing a good job. Were, were there other reasons? So one of the most effective and important achievements was getting deworming coverage numbers included in the performance contracts of the permanent secretaries policies and priorities are set at the cabinet level and then flow down through line ministries and, you know, all of the technical people and the implementers in those ministries. And so if part of a minister or a permanent secretary's definition of job success is to have deworming coverage reach a certain level, that's a really great way to align um, people's focus. But the other thing that I think was also really important in Kenya is that Kenya became a model for other countries in how to do school-based deworming. And I think that was a justifiable source of pride. 
And it was exciting to see something happening at such large scale. I think people really relate to the problem of worms from their own life experience and that of their families and their children. And so, again, I think having partners that were willing to sit next to them and look at the problem together and see it through to the end really went a long way. Yeah. A common complaint with people who work with governments, I guess in this context and in all contexts, is a like really rapid staff turnover, whereas a program could be turned upside down because the minister changes. Is that a problem that you ran into? Yes. And I think one of the things that I have learned and that I work with partners on now is how do you codify and institutionalize relationships such that they survive turnover? We all know how important it is to have champions, right, in government, but champions leave, (laughs) right? And so you need to find new champions. And so relationship building is essential and never ends, but you also have to be thinking from the beginning about how do we codify these relationships in a way that is not just an individual thing. And so that can be MOUs. It can be membership on existing committees or technical working groups, you know, getting written into annual operating plans, seconding people to ministries so that you have people actually sitting there in the office. These are all ways that relationships can be deeper and longer term and more enduring than you would get by just like getting one individual person excited, which is a great way to start, but that needs to then lead to some of these other longer lasting approaches. Did you ever have to coordinate with people who were in some sense unqualified or maybe out of their depth and so (laughs) perhaps weren't up to what you were hoping they would do? Well, there were certainly times where I was out of my depth, let me tell you. I think that there is a perception of civil servants or working with governments as, you know, it's slow, it's, uh, you know, nobody cares. And I actually have not found that to be the case. I find that, by and large, the people that I have met and have worked with in the Kenyan government and in other governments are, they are public servants. They are incredibly dedicated and they are working within really tough constraints. I think, sure, there's gaps in capacity that we all have to face and work on together. But I really think that very often those perceptions come from misunderstandings about how decisions are made, who has authority to make certain decisions and why. And so we can very easily say, oh, well, this person's not being helpful or they're being obstructionist, but like they're working within a set of rules that is not of their making. So I think that there are way more opportunities to work constructively and collaboratively with government partners than we allow ourselves perhaps um, because of some of those assumptions. Are there any other lessons that you learned about coordinating with governments and partners in government uh, that, that you haven't had a chance to mention yet? I think it's really important for people to learn more about how governments spend money, how they make decisions, and how they deliver goods and services. I often like to use the university as an example when I talk to people about how should you be thinking about working with the government. So let's say you wanted to do a project with a university, okay? 
And you said, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to people and I want to talk to a broad selection of people at the university to find out about this project. And I'm going to do that in July. Well, anyone who's been to a university, certainly in the U.S., would say, well, but you can't. Nobody's there in July. Similarly, in governments, there are fiscal years and talking to somebody right at the end of a fiscal year is not the right time, right, to be thinking about how they're spending money or, right, the plans for the next year have already been made, the money from the previous year has already been spent, right? So having, like, being cognizant of the cadence of the way that a government works is really important. Another analogy that I think works well with universities is when, if you, let's say you wanted to say, well, what does the university think about this? Okay. And people ask me that all the time. Well, how, what does the Kenyan government think about this? Okay. Well, who do you mean? Okay. Like, shall we ask the president? Shall we convene the cabinet? Governments are these incredibly complex institutions within which there's like, a lot of disagreement, right? And at the same time, there is policy that flows from the top, right? There are structures, there are annual operating plans, et cetera, that um, you need to understand how to work with. And so I think that understanding the periodicity and cadence of the way that governments work is really important. Budgets, election cycles, the time horizon for policy change. And, you know, meanwhile, in the development sector, you know, we've got everything works to the time frame of the donor project cycle, right? You need to put in your uh, reports to the donor, right? They're marching to their uh, cadence, Process, yeah. okay? Right, okay. And so working with the government, I mean, it's a big ship, right? It does not turn on a dime and you wouldn't want it to, right? Um, and so really recognizing that and embracing it as a pathway to massive scale that you have to work within and alongside is absolutely essential in terms of getting things done. Yeah, are there any other, any other lessons uh, while, you're, while you're on a roll here? So certainly some of the things I've mentioned about like how governments can or cannot spend money, like moving budgets, you know, from one line ministry to another. You know, I had no idea about this until I started working with governments myself. And so I think that we could all do a lot more to like ask the partners that we're working with how the system that they're working in, like how it works, right? And how best to support and work alongside that system. I also think one of the most important functions of a government is a coordinating function. And it's all too rare to find development partners that are willing to be coordinated. I remember sitting in a meeting of a bunch of partners in the school health space, and it was representatives from a bunch of different NGOs, all of whom had grants to coordinate the school health sector, okay? <laughs> Nobody was there to be coordinated, right? And so, you know, that's what we should be letting governments do, okay? And and let them coordinate us. And that's hard, right? Yeah. That's hard. Well, it's giving up control. Uh, it means it's you can't tell donors exactly what you're going to deliver because someone else might tell you <laughs> what they want to be have that's delivered. That's right. Yeah. That's interesting. That's right. That's right. 
Okay, you you were in charge of the, of the country office in Kenya for for five years, and and I, I think you had some continued involvement with these with these projects after that. Well, how long did it take to for it to kind of mature? So we did the first round of the first national round of school based deworming. I think it was two thousand eight. And that was, I think we reached 3.6 million kids. It was around 8,000 schools. That was the first sort of national scope deworming program. The following year, the funds that had been available in the Kenyan government were no longer available. The donors had pulled the entire Kenya Education Subsector Support Program, of which, you know, the deworming program was a tiny, tiny little piece. There were much bigger issues and challenges and the whole lot of funding got pulled. And so the program basically stopped. And so we set out to bring in new support for the program so that it could continue and continue to grow. We were finally able to get SIF, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, to put serious resources behind it. They committed $12.8 million for five years of delivery. Um, That started in, I think, 2011. And so really that was what then created the our ability to set up a machine that was going to just work year after year. But it always needs to be tended. As I say, nothing is sustainable, okay? No, nothing is self-sustaining without constant energy and attention and investment. And so thanks to GiveWell and other like-minded donors, the program continues. It has gotten more efficient over time. Um, It leverages incredible investments of thousands of Kenyan teachers' time and um, resources from the government, but does still require philanthropic support. In India, the government pays for a lot of the costs of the program, but support from philanthropic donors through, again, Evidence Actions Deworm the World Initiative plays a really important function in leveraging that government investment and making sure the program is happening and happening at quality in an effective way. Having been around for a bunch of years, does the program become more resilient because there's kind of pressure for it to continue? Because people are like more people are invested in it, like parents expect it now, the teachers are planning to do it such that if funding disappeared, people would create a ruckus? So I don't think that, you know, deworming is not salient enough for people to to be sticky like that. argue if it's missing. I mean, you know, think about like, I don't know, when I was in school, we all got tested for eyeglasses. Okay. We all had our sight tested. If they suddenly stopped doing that, I'm not sure my parents would have noticed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And again, this is like one of those things where like, it, it shouldn't be incumbent upon people. Like they should just get this. Right. Um, and so I don't think that public pressure is the key to sustaining a program like this. I think that it's got to be something that is just very deeply embedded in annual operating procedures. Like, it's just what happens, you know? It's just something that happens every year. Okay, so so the, the project reached a degree of stability between 2011 and 2016, thanks to this grant from SIF, which I guess was about 2 or $3 million a year. And that was mostly to pay for the tablets at that point, I guess. No, actually, so deworming drugs are contributed. They are free. There is a a global drug donation program coordinated by the WHO in which GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, other manufacturers donate 
deworming drugs. So to the programs, they are free. Helping to coordinate that was, you know, some of the work we did in the beginning. I think over time, there's less to be done on that front. So no, actually, the drugs themselves are a very small part of the cost. It's really about the delivery. And so in Kenya, Deworm the World acted almost as a fiscal agent, supplying the funds needed down to, you know, the last mile level in order to run the trainings, to do the data collection, right? To actually do the activities all the way down to the school level. Yeah. To some degree, we've already talked about this, but a lot of people might have the reaction like, the, you know, the Kenyan government should be funding this. It's like, it's, it's weird that a nonprofit is, is involved in coordinating this kind of thing. I guess it seems like there was a test where that disappeared for a year and the program stopped. <laughs> it wasn't as if the government stepped up and paid for it. And I guess there's probably like quite complicated, interesting, like decision-making institutional reasons why it is the case that it's not easy to grab a few million dollars and a bunch of staff to take over the role that, that you were doing. If, if you walk away, then the program freezes. Kenya is a a resource-constrained place, right? And so, again, I mean, I don't, this may sound glib, but it's kind of like saying, like, well, if poor people just spent more money on stuff, they would be less poor. They're poor because they're poor, right? And so, you know, there are enormous pressures. There, there are lots of needs that resource allocators within the Kenyan government need to f- fill, right? Countries like Kenya borrow a lot of money, right? So it's not, I think it's an overly simplistic mental model to kind of say, well, there's this big pile of money, okay? It's, you know, the government, they're so rich, why don't they just spend money on this? If you think about those funds as like taxpayer funds, we're convinced that like the people receiving the deworming drugs shouldn't pay for them. Well, but that's their government that they we're would be paying about. for them doing the taxes effectively. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and so look, this can be taken to extremes, right? And of course, there are things that governments can and should pay for. But in some ways, I almost feel like the amount of effort that it would take to ensure that these funds were allocated and dispersed and delivered and used well year after year is frankly, you know. It's easier to st- we should <laughs> we it. should do that for Kenya. Yeah. Like we should just do that for Kenya. Yeah. Okay. And you know, there are other countries like South Africa that pay for it themselves. You know, India is paying for most of it themselves. It's leveraged by a much smaller amount of money that pays for the technical assistance and support around those basic costs. It's a similar thing. It's about like, you know, blaming poor people for being poor you know, Kenya is resource constrained, right? There's a lot of things they need to spread their resources over. And if this is something that can be easily taken care of by philanthropic funds, like I would much rather see that happen. And hopefully, you know, again, there will be a time not that far from now where Kenya won't need to have a deworming program. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, we've been talking there a bit about collaboration with governments, uh, yeah, all, all government-related issues. Let's just talk uh, a little bit more about the, the logistical uh, issues that we left behind. You mentioned you found a bunch of other efficiencies, ways to run the program even better, I guess, uh, at, once it became a bit more stable, 2011 through 2016. What were some of those? Gosh, there were so many little details. When we first started, everything was on paper, right? I mean, digital data collection, 
was very nascent. And so, you know, we did a lot of work around designing better forms so that they could be more easily rolled up um, and collated as they moved from the school level to, you know, the district and then the province and then the national level. Um, Again, you know, these were the early days. The program has now been run by teams for years since then. And so a lot of this is old news now. Um, And there are new innovations and like new technologies that are helping to do this more efficiently. You know, everything from how many days should the trainings be so that you could fit in two in a week instead of one, you know, this thing about making the lists so that you make sure that everybody is able to show up for the teacher training, optimizing the right number of tablets that go to each school so that you don't have too many. Right. But but also so that you don't run out. Like there's nothing less efficient than having gone through all of the work to deliver a deworming program and then you run out of tablets on the day. Right. And so, you know, those kinds of things, again, like the deeply unsexy, but super important. And frankly, what I find thrilling is to like, how do you get all of that to work? Right. And how do you get it to work so that you don't have to make decisions about this every time over and over again? That to me is kind of really a sign of success is when it just kind of seems obvious, like it's always been done this way. Yeah. How did you get the tablets delivered to the schools on time? So in the early years, I mean, I think the first couple times when we just sort of did it manually, right? But no, we over time, we worked with existing drug distribution systems to get them to depots at the local level, and they would then be distributed to these teacher training sessions. And so again, that's another example of the need for coordination between ministries that in some ways an external partner is better placed to do than people within the government. And so, you know, it was a whole series of SOPs that we built for, you know, every step in that chain, moving things from the center down a cascade and then moving all of the excess tablets and the data back up to the center so that, you know, they could be processed there. Yeah. So I guess like two classic challenges that come up in massively scaling any development interventions are you worry that the quality of the intervention is going to degrade as you reach way more people. You know, so something worked well in one classroom, but now you're trying to get thousands of teachers to do it. You haven't trained them to do it properly, say, or, or, they're, or they're not quite up to it for some reason. Another one is uh, what economists call general e- equilibrium concerns, where something might be fine just uh, in, in isolation, but then as other people respond, as kind of the entire system adapts to this new intervention, things could go awry or there could be like unintended positive or negative effects that you need to consider. Deworming seems like a pretty bad example of both of these, but I'm interested to probe you. What possible ways could the quality of the deworming get worse that you had to see off? Yeah, so you expect quality and fidelity to design to erode as a program grows. And so you have to build in those expectations ahead of time, right? So you have to assume that there is going to be some mistakes in the estimates of how many kids there are, right? And so again, you have to make a call. Do you want to err on the side of sending too many or too few? I think that, you know, the best programs are robust to some fuzziness. If a program is cheap enough, right, and if it is big enough, well, if it's not the very best quality it could be, it kind of doesn't matter. It should be actually, fun, yeah. Right? You're kind of getting, you're kind of picking all of the low-hanging fruit and like that's good, okay? At the same time, 
if you're not aware of that dynamic and if you don't build in mechanisms to shore it up, that will only get worse over time. And so I think in the one of the most important factors is putting in place a monitoring system that will allow you to know what's going on, not only because you can then respond to gaps and dips in performance, but also because the very existence of a monitoring program helps prevent an erosion in quality because people know that there's monitoring happening. So in the beginning, you kind of monitor everything, right? You want to, you're not sure what matters yet. And so you're kind of measuring everything. And so part of what happens over time is you start to identify like, what are those key things that where if we know that this thing is happening, like we can be pretty confident that things are going well. So like in the deworming program, for example, the presence of drugs at the school the day before deworming day, it's a really easy thing to monitor, right? It's a, excellent proxy for a whole bunch of other stuff having happened, okay? And so you come up over time with things like that that you can then look at and in many cases respond to in real time. And again, this is one of the functions that, you know, an external partner can really be incredibly valuable to a government. Management that can do this kind of stuff is you know, hard to come by in general, but also like those people are super busy and they're managing a lot of things. And so complementing government programs with that kind of capacity can be really useful. So I think you have to build that in from the beginning and expect like, okay, you know, if 80% of this goes as expected, what do we think is going to happen? And if everything needs to go right in order for the program to work, the program will not work. Yeah, okay. Well, what about the uh, general general equilibrium effects there? So I think for deworming, so one general equilibrium effect that you might be worried about on a mass drug administration program, a deworming program, is um, drug resistance. So if you're regularly treating everybody over a very long period of time, will the drugs become less effective over time? And this is certainly something that scientists pay attention to through surveillance. I think, you know, the general feeling, you know, my understanding is that annual or biannual treatment is not enough to make that a serious problem, but that's certainly something that you would want to watch out for. We worry more about general equilibrium effects when we're like affecting markets in ways, right? So if you're increasing agricultural productivity, are you then making the price of farm products go down or things like that. So general equilibrium effect type questions are absolutely critical to be thinking about as you scale any kind of program. But I think beyond the drug resistance one, there aren't major ones that come to mind for me with respect to deworming. Did you learn any valuable lessons about how to keep uh, keep donors happy? So... I hope for a day when the way to keep donors happy is to deliver amazing impact for them. And I think more and more we have donors like that. And I think that's what's so exciting to me is when the donor's agenda and their definition of success is fully consistent with like a delivering impact. Sadly, there are other donors that are still out there that, you know, respond more to pretty pictures and, you know, good stories. 
And frankly, those are not the donors that I work with as much. Um, (laughs) What I think is most important and what I have learned over the years is about really being truthful about what you think you can achieve and what the risks are. And, you know, it takes a certain amount of courage on both the grantee and on the donor's part to have those conversations. Nobody wants to think about something failing, okay? But, you know, things fail all the time. We're trying to solve really hard problems. And the vast majority of private sector businesses fail. And here, those are, you know, cases where, like, everybody's interests are aligned and people are trying really hard to just make those businesses work. And even in the face of that, many of them just don't. And so here we are trying to like solve these deeply intractable social problems, poverty and ill health and all of these. So we have to expect that a lot of these things are not going to work. I think that when we overpromise to donors, we do ourselves and them a disservice because then there isn't an environment where there is a tolerance for and frankly, an embracing of failure such that we can learn and then stop investing in those things that aren't working well. So if you can get to that place and have that kind of relationship with a donor, even though in the short term, that can be very scary, I find that in the long term, you can really get a much more trust-based long-term relationship to support the work that you're doing. So I guess to kind of bring this section to a close, how should the world feel about this uh, deworming story kind of on the, on, on the whole? What's the, what's the big picture? Well, there's no question that deworming is one of the largest public health programs in the world. Evidence Action, who now leads the Deworm the World initiative, has helped to deliver over 1.3 billion treatments since 2014 at a cost of less than 50 cents per treatment. And so, you know, there are just simply very few examples of this level of breadth and reach and scale at all. And so I think this is something, you know, to be really excited and proud of. Yeah, it's nice to see an intervention come from kind of conception or testing. I guess people doing, you know, repeat testing to kind of check and and, and pin down exactly what the, what the effect is. But also just this like massive scaling, which is, you know, a coordinated effort between nonprofit folks, medical folks, philanthropists uh, in, in rich countries, uh, you know, go- governments in the in, in, in the countries that are affected. It's pulled in a whole lot of people. And as you're pointing out, just looking at the number of doses delivered, it's been at least a partial success, potentially a very big success. Certainly inspires me, that's for sure. Okay, let's push on from deworm the world and and deworming specifically and think about lessons learned in your career in general, the ways things have changed. So you've been involved in scaling deworming, uh, also this this immigration program, No Lean Season, that unfortunately we probably won't get to explore that much uh, today. Have you been involved in scaling any any, any other programs? Uh, Sure. There was a program called G-United in Kenya, which scaled for a while. Um, Sadly, not continuing now, but hope to revive that at some point. Um, And I've been involved in an advisory capacity on, you know, scaling many programs in many parts of the world. Yeah. So what kind of generalized lessons have you learned about growing programs? Is there anything that's kind of cross-cutting? I think the most important lesson that I've learned in taking a program from evidence to scale is the importance of starting with and always coming back to a theory of change. And a theory of change is essentially a description of a journey from kind of where we are now to where we want to be and a set of hypotheses about what needs to happen along the way to get us there. It's a causal pathway from a set of inputs to a series of outputs 
which then lead to a set of outcomes and then ultimately to impacts. So, for example, you know, inputs and activities are like the program components, right? So for a school feeding program, that would be like the food and the training and the funds, right? And that then leads to a series of outputs, which is, say, a certain number of children receiving meals at school, that then leads to outcomes, which are you know, intermediate or short-term changes that result from those outputs. And so you know, in the case of a school feeding program, that might be more children are attending school and are able to concentrate better in class. And then that finally leads to your impacts or your goals, which are the long-term changes that result from this causal pathway. And you know, in our example, improve learning better socioeconomic outcomes, et cetera. And so when you have a piece of evidence or a set of evidence that kind of maps that out, the key to scaling is to figure out how do you automate and simplify and deliverable at scale those initial inputs such that that causal chain remains. And what is it that you need to test along the way in order to make sure that that's still happening? Okay, so you kind of want to make your theory of change like quite explicit and then see what are the parts that might not work as it got larger? What are the things that we need to be paying close attention to, basically? Exactly. And so for different types of interventions, you're going to end up having different weaknesses along that chain, right? So for example, with deworming, once you get tablets in mouths, you can be reasonably confident that those are going to kill the worms. That's not something you need to relitigate, right? And so coverage in that case, like the number of children receiving deworming drugs, as long as you know that they're not fake, right? You know, that they are actual drugs and they are actually being taken. Like you can, you don't need to necessarily relitigate that all the time. Okay. However, in many other programs that particularly ones that have behavioral components, you have to double check that, right? And so for me, like the biggest lesson is unpacking the evidence into a really robust theory of change, having a very clear strategy for delivering those inputs and those activities in such a way that you're going to set off that causal pathway and so that you're going to know along the way if each successive step is happening. And that is exactly, you know, when we were talking about some of the examples in deworming, like are the pills at the, are the tablets at the school, you know, are all the schools on the list? You know, those are some of the assumptions that we had to question along the way and make sure that that entire journey from inputs all the way to impact was really happening. What's a way that kind of evidence-based development practice is different today than it was back in 2006? So there's some like, important things that we've learned as an industry. Absolutely. So first of all, we have an incredible infrastructure of organizations in this space. So there are lots of people that now have technical capacity that didn't before that are available to work with implementers and governments. There are people within implementing organizations and governments that have done this kind of work. And so, you know, there's just more knowledge and experience and resources that can be wielded to help answer questions about, you know, what works, what doesn't, et cetera. I also think that there's been 
a big growth in the sophistication of how we think about generating evidence for policymakers and what we mean when we say like moving from evidence to scale, right? So we, I think, you know, used to have a slightly more simplistic view and, you know, perhaps the deworming program is an example of that where it's like a program, a package, you studied that thing, we want to scale up that thing. Now there's like bodies of evidence that speak to each other in ways that are more than the sum of their parts. And we can pull in lessons about what motivates frontline workers in Zambia and like use that to inform program design of some other subject in some other place. We're also seeing there are certain approaches that have been subjected to sufficient numbers of studies like teaching at the right level where the evidence base is so strong that we really now can be thinking about, like, how do we adapt this and deliver it in a range of places? And teaching at the right level is now its own organization doing that in incredible ways in multiple countries. So I just think that the whole field has gotten much more sophisticated and nuanced and you know, there are just way more opportunities for making evidence generation useful and salient to actual programs and policies. Yeah. What are some ways that the skills or, or the mentality of a, of a researcher, you know, someone who's trying to publish papers, needs to be different than a, a, someone who's trying to scale a program, someone who's trying to deploy it, or someone, I guess, who's you know, advising a government and uh, trying to get the, the government to do something useful? So Rachel Glenister has a wonderful talk on this topic that I really encourage everybody to listen to. Um, She gave a keynote at CSAE a few years ago and talked about some of the differences in doing evidence generation as an academic versus for policy. And I think some of the themes she pulls out are, are sort of worth talking about. In academia, you're trying to find the optimal answer or the optimal solution. But in a policy setting, you're trying to optimize within constraints. You don't have an unlimited set of options from which to choose, right? And so the way you would construct a study or the way you would ask a certain set of questions is really very different. The timeframes are really different. What success looks like and how one is rewarded for a study happening well or not, they're just very, very different. But I think that Even though these differences exist, many of the examples that we have of programs that have scaled successfully have been ones that have been driven by academics who really care about the policy influence of their work. And I think the reason that matters is because evidence isn't just a set of answers that you pull off the shelf. In taking something from a study to scale, all kinds of questions come up about what are the underlying mechanisms? Why did we do it that way? Well, if we change that, are we now pulling apart the whole theory of change or is that still going to work? And so I think some of the most exciting examples of times when studies have moved from evidence to scale have been when you have a really committed academic who's willing to kind of take that journey with policymakers. There's a paper that Michael Kramer and Sasha Gallant and a few others did that looking back at investments that 
div development innovation ventures made over a certain number of years. And this is one of the things that they point out, this relationship between academic involvement and scale. Yeah. Are there any other lessons that you've learned about scaling a program from a paper to a massive program that you, that you haven't had a chance to share yet? Well, I will say I have learned an awful lot about how to make those academic practitioner partnerships work well. And so maybe that's worth sharing. Yeah, go for it. You know, there is some tension between sometimes, you know, what a program needs from a data and evidence perspective and what is attractive to an academic, right? Sometimes you really just want to replicate something or, you know, you need a bunch of descriptive statistics. And this is not necessarily what's going to attract the attention of a world-class development economist. At the same time, many of those world-class development economists, we're lucky to have them involved and caring about the impact of their research. And so I find it's really useful and important to have an open conversation with academic partners about what would make it interesting for them. And I have found that almost always people are absolutely willing to do the less sexy stuff if you also allow them to ask some really interesting, innovative questions that will drive their research agenda. And nine times out of 10, that part of it is going to end up leading to new insights that affect your work anyway. And so the marginal cost of adding another module to a survey or trying a slightly different version of an intervention, doing that can create the space for intellectual engagement from top thinkers and then brings those people to the table for all of the other things that you need. And so I think we should have those conversations. It sounds like you think that, uh, I guess, people in government or people doing deployment can sometimes be too reluctant to just like add on things to their program that are basically just for the interests of these academics, uh, even though like on net, it might be a real win-win. I think we should be open to that. You know, when the cost is low, I mean, if it's literally just adding some questions to a survey, it's not even visible, you know, to people who are implementing. But it's rare that you have a situation where, you know, everything is kind of asked and answered. There are always interesting and important questions to be asked. And so I think a real honest conversation on the part of donors, government partners, implementers, and academics about, like, what does it take to bring everybody to the table? I think that's a good a conversation worth having. Okay, so uh, we've been going for a while. Uh, it's maybe time to begin uh, wrapping things up, bringing things to a close. As a last major topic, I'd begin to talk about your current consultancy project, the thing that you've uh, now gone into, which you mentioned at the start, uh, called Fit for Purpose. What are the main challenges with the aid industry that uh, Fit for Purpose is kind of designed to take on? Yeah, so we had talked earlier about some of the ways that the aid industry is structured and, and how this can kind of create misaligned incentives. And that is because most of the players in the aid industry are either donors or grant recipients. And, you know, I've spent most of my career working with and helping to build organizations that are aiming to achieve impact. And, you know, these organizations, I believe, are really important. We need them to exist. And I feel very good about my role in helping to create them and, you know, I'm cheering them on. At the same time, there is a point at which the organization always becomes the project, right? And so I understand why this is the case, right? As the leader of an organization, you want that organization to continue. 
for me, it felt like I was ready to almost, if I can even say, indulge myself in having some time to work in the industry such that the work that we are doing is fully aligned with impact, right? Where the project is the impact. And so for us, a big impetus behind starting Fit for Purpose was to create a mechanism to engage in and to contribute to global health and development in a way that is aligned with impact. And so our business model as a small firm relies on really adding value to our partners and our clients. Our partners and clients pay us for our time and for the value of the work we contribute. And so I don't have skin in the game about who gets funded or who's getting the overhead on a particular grant. And I'm really loving being able to work with and provide strategic and technical support to some of the world's best and most innovative social entrepreneurs and researchers and philanthropists. And I'm finding it really rewarding to be able to use my expertise, my networks and skills to help them turn up the volume of their work in a way that I can be really honest and open about what I think makes sense for impact. Yeah. What sort of questions do people come to you, come to you with? Well, I think there's a big range. We have a portfolio now of about a dozen partners um, that we're working with. And um, I can use GiveWell as an example. They are a partner that we've worked with since the very beginning. Um, and I should say, you know, I am not a GiveWell employee. I'm not representing them. Um, but I have been providing ongoing strategic and technical support to them and their team over the last two years. And it's a range of types of work, in some ways providing the perspective of an implementer as they think through their research, some insights on supporting RCTs and ways to make that effective and kind of maximize the impact of those RCTs, providing some context on delivery, partnership-related issues, but one of the aspects of it that I'm finding you know, most exciting and rewarding is serving as a sort of a bridge or a translator for organizations who are potential grantees who are less familiar with the GiveWell approach. Because so much of what they do is so different from the typical way that the aid industry works a lot of the muscle memory that grant seekers have needs to kind of be unlearned a little bit in ways that I think are refreshing once you get there, but are not necessarily obvious. Yeah, what's an example of that where people have the wrong intuitions about what to do or say? Well, so for example, this notion of sustainability, right? Oh, don't worry, we're going to just invest a little bit now and then it's going to take off on its own. That's not necessarily consistent with really understanding what is the most cost-effective way that we can invest in this program now and potentially over time. I think that's a very clear example. Another one is thinking about the fully loaded costs of an intervention. So many donors want their funding to leverage that of others. Now, that can be a good thing. However, hard to generalize, right? Just the mere fact that someone else is spending a lot of money on it doesn't necessarily make it a worthwhile investment. So, you know, of course, GiveWell thinks about like the total costs, 
whether they're born by a GiveWell uh, give well inspired donor or some other source of funds, thinking about that whole package. Another important aspect is about, you know, thinking about the fact that not every intervention is going to have the same level of cost effectiveness in every context, right? Different countries have, for example, different disease burdens. And so, Really understanding that and making a prioritization matrix, for example, of where you might want to deliver a program, that's a very different approach from some other donors which say, well, you know, we fund these countries. So some of these ways of thinking, once you actually talk to people and can kind of let, get them to let their guard down from what's like the typical donor face most, I think, find it actually a really refreshing relief. But you need to hear that. You know, I have, we have found that it can be helpful to have someone like me who's been both a grantee and now an advisor to give well to kind of talk through that process. So that's been something that's been very exciting. That's really interesting that you have kind of one foot and a bunch of history in the traditional nonprofit development world and also one foot and a bunch of experience with the effective altruist mindset and effective altruist like research style and I guess the way the way that we talk about things as well. And so you can like potentially be yeah, be this translator and, and I guess like explain the concepts that people have back and forth. Yeah, a lot gets lost when people are talking to one another because I guess in some cases they're not being 100% frank or candid about everything that they think. In other cases, they just assume that people have knowledge that they don't. Yeah. I mean, as we've been saying, you know, frankly, a lot of the aid industry is often based on these kind of weird, perverse incentives. And so when you really strip those away, we have to talk to each other differently about what are the real costs? What are the real benefits? What is the uncertainty, right? Most donors, they don't want to hear the likelihood of failure or they want that number to be zero, right? And again, I understand that, okay? But the reality is there's risks in everything we do. A lot of the things we try, you know, may fail and forward-thinking donors like GiveWell and now others as well are starting to kind of bake that in to their assessment of grants and are more and more willing to take some risks, understanding that not everything is going to work out in the end. Yeah, because I imagine that for, for most development nonprofits, if they went to a typical grant maker, I suppose you know, foundations are famously very diverse in, in what they want. But I imagine that if you went to most of them and were very upfront about all of the weaknesses of your program and all of the ways it might fail and all of the concerns that you have about the, the project, they probably wouldn't fund you because they think, well, if this is what they're telling us, like imagine what they're not telling us. That's right. Yeah. Going to give well and smoothing things over is a big mistake. And they'd be like, well, what aren't they telling us? And if you're upfront about like all of the things that you understand that could go wrong or, or the weaknesses in the evidence, they're going to think, wow, these guys are really smart. They're switched on. They're being honest. And so it's like quite the reverse of what you would normally, the strategy that you would normally take. Precisely. And so, you know, if you, again, have the luxury of being able to be truly impact focused, well, then you have to embrace that uncertainty, right? And be thinking about what are all of the things that can go wrong? What are the likelihoods of those things going wrong? And also, what are previous failures that we've learned from, right? This is not a way to get new funding if for most donors is to kind of tell them all the things you tried that failed. And, you know, as we've discussed in the private sector, things fail all the time. There's very little tolerance for that in the nonprofit sector. And yet here we are trying to solve these really tough problems. So sometimes it just helps to hear from like an honest broker, like a, an earnest outsider that it's like, it's okay. <laughs> you know, you, you can say that. Um, and that that is actually a credibility building 
conversation in this context and for the right kind of organization, that's really refreshing. Yeah. With the first question about what fit for purpose is up to, that you know, there's all of these potentially perverse incentives for people in the development industry and that I guess you don't feel those so much, I guess, running your own consultancy. Can you elaborate on that? I'm, like, I'm not exactly sure what, what you mean and kind of what's different. So if you're working at an organization that is a grant-seeking organization, as we've discussed, it's highly likely that your business model revolves around the quantity of funding that you're able to raise. Right. And so if you can raise $20 million and your overhead rate is X percent, again, whether that's a whether X is high or low, that is what then enables you to pay your finance team, pay your office rent, pay the electricity bills. Okay. Well, if along the way it turns out that actually, you know, it would be much more efficient if this other organization was delivering that. Or let's say the government was going to be able to pay for some of it. Well, in a funny way, your incentive is not to let that happen because then you lose your X percent on that amount of money. So as a partner, as, you know, as fit for purpose, we can truly be an intellectually independent, honest broker and talk to a set of partners about what makes sense for the impact here. Something that you wouldn't expect is, you know, when I did Y Combinator, I expected it to be a really competitive environment, right? Here you are and you're in the private sector, right? And it's all about competition. And I was blown away by the level of collaboration that existed in that community. And frankly, in comparison to the nonprofit world, which can be quite competitive, people compete for funding. And so very often we're fighting over slices of the same pie. Whereas like, you know, the white combinator model is like, we're making the pie bigger. It's getting bigger for everybody. And so again, as an honest broker, independent voice and partner, I aspire to help bring actors together in ways that we can become more than the sum of our parts, where there isn't this kind of zero-sum game, like you're going to get the grant or I'm going to get the grant, right? And I think that there's a lot of work to be done and a lot that we can explore as an industry on how to collaborate and work together more effectively. Yeah. What's the kind of thorniest problem or hardest question that someone has brought you so far? You might not be able to say, but but if you can. Well, certainly, you know, coming back to the sustainability question is always a tough one. And, And sometimes it's helping people to articulate to their donors why that should or shouldn't matter, right? Um, and kind of helping people think through how to communicate that with the people that fund them. Another a related one is about diversifying funding. Many donors see a diversification of funding sources as in and of itself a good thing. And that may not be the case, right? In the sense that, again, if you kind of take an effective altruist approach, like, you know, philanthropic funds are philanthropic funds, and just having a diverse portfolio of grantors often means you just have that many more donor reports to write, right? And um, the restrictions that donors can place on how you spend their money ends up making for lots of inefficiencies. 
And so that can be, you know, a tough conversation. But I would say, you know, challenges in working with governments, right, where you're getting government pushback on something and how to work through those relationships, management issues. I've kind of seen it all from one <laughs> one point of view or another. And so, you know, what I really like is being able to be a shoulder to cry on or a wall to bounce ideas off of. And so leaders of organizations or programs within organizations can kind of come to us and get our help in working through these thorny problems in a way that doesn't feel high stakes, like my donors are going to abandon me because I don't know how to sort this out. Yeah. How do you enjoy consultancy work on a day-to-day basis compared to the work you were doing before actually trying to uh, scale, you know, one specific program and it's the same program year after year? I'm still learning, right? This is still a new journey for me. I would say, so one of the things I was worried about when I started about two and a half years ago um, was what would it feel isolating? And then, of course, the entire world <laughs> got isolated. Um, and so, you know, we're going to hold that constant for the, you know, this is sort of a COVID fixed effect. And I'm just not sure how that's going to feel um, moving forward. I was certainly worried about whether or not I would feel part of a community, a professional community. And that has not borne out as at all. Um, I've just been very lucky to now be part of several communities in ways that I feel, you know, are really rewarding and exciting. It is still a little awkward for me. Like, I'm still not used to asking people to pay me for my time, you know, as someone who had been salaried, even though I was always in positions where I was responsible for raising funds for my team and my salary. And so always felt a sense of ownership. It felt a little less transactional on a day-to-day basis. But again, I think for me, it forces me and the partners I work with to kind of think about over and over again, if I'm adding value and if it's worth it. And that I feel like that's how it should be. So we're still learning. We're still figuring it out. But so far, I have really enjoyed the ability to curate what I work on, um, to choose to take on a project because I think it seems really promising. And I'm just very fortunate to be able to take a little bit of risk at a personal level, you know, and see if this works out financially in the long run. So, so far, so good, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. You watch this space. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say on the, on the GiveWell or like EA involvement stuff? So I will say, and, you know, this is related to something we discussed earlier, you know, as GiveWell is now looking to expand the number and scope of programs that they are supporting, I think, you know, they are looking to engage with new partners. And that's been very exciting for me to participate in. They are also hiring. It is a very exciting time to be joining their team. So for your listeners who are interested in contributing to that you should absolutely check out the GiveWell site and look at some of the jobs that they have open. Is Fit for Purpose hiring at all? Like, do, you, do you have you know expansion plans? So we're not hiring right now, but we are certainly always looking for like-minded people who may want to engage with and through us to contribute to the sets of partners that we're working with now. And I'm certainly interested in hearing from and potentially engaging with social entrepreneurs, both starting their own organizations or potentially starting programs within organizations that might be interested in engaging with us and so that we can help them. 
Something that's a little bit unusual uh, about you, actually, I'm not sure how unusual it is in the development world, but, but you've actually been, you moved to Kenya 20 years ago and you've basically been living there solidly for, for 20 years in, in the location that you were originally doing the work on deworming uh, for quite a long time. Yeah, what do you enjoy about, about living there? So I remember when I first came to Kenya, it was actually in the 90s, I decided not to put a cap on how long I was going to spend there. You know, people used to ask me, well, like, how long are you planning on spending in Kenya? And I remember making a very distinct decision not to answer that question because I felt like if I did that, if I said, okay, well, I'm going to be here for two years, the second you do that, well, it's like now the clock is ticking and every day that goes by, your level of investment and the amount of time ahead of you that you're spending in a place is getting smaller and smaller. And so I may have overdone it. You know, here I am all of these years later, but I really do think that that changed the way that I kind of formed relationships with people and with the place. I think that what is a little different about my experience living in Kenya, I think there are lots of people that work in global health and development that spend long chunks of time overseas from where, you know, they were originally born. I think it's a little more common to kind of hop around and spend a few years in each of several places. And I mean, I wouldn't say that there's a better or worse version of this. But I will say for myself, I feel like the layers of learning just get deeper and deeper. I mean, I remember when I had been in Kenya for six weeks and thinking I was so clever because, you know, I had been there for so much longer than the typical tourist. And then in six months, I felt like, oh gosh, well now, and I felt that way after six years and I still feel that way today. And so I feel like the learning never stops. And so, you know, as long as I feel that way, I will, you know, be happy there. I also just can't help but feel like the incredible diversity of people, of ecosystems, of livelihoods that Kenya represents is just thrilling to me. And and the sense that the future will be better than the present. You know, I am driven by and really passionate about good, hard problems, right? But also the sense that we can make progress against them. And I feel that in Kenya in a way that's very compelling. I'm not naive. There are serious challenges. I also live a very privileged life there, right? But there is this sense of motion and dynamism that I find electric and if anyone wants to come visit me in Nairobi, I'll show them why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess, you know, Kenya is a country with plenty of poverty, but I suppose it might have a bunch more optimism about the future than the United States does, because uh, maybe starting from a lower base, it's got like a long way up to go that might be relatively straightforward, potentially. I mean, the changes that I have seen in my own time there, I first went to Kenya in 1992. Kenya was a single party state. There were sedition laws on the books. You couldn't criticize the government. There was very little infrastructure. You know, today... I can do more with my mobile phone in Nairobi than you can in the UK or that anyone in the US can. Like there are aspects of life in Kenya that are super cutting edge and innovative. And sure, there are still major challenges in poverty. But my day-to-day experience in Kenya is one of ultimate optimism. Yeah. I suppose the ultimate conclusion of this never putting an end on things, would, I guess, would be becoming a Kenyan citizen and potentially retiring there and just living out the rest of your life there. What do you think of the chances you might do that? 
So did my mom put you up to that question? <laughs> um, <laughs> is, that, is that something that comes from I'm your family? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I would never say never, right? Just in the same way that like I kind of, you know, the way I used to answer the question of how long are you staying is I, I would say kind of not permanently, but indefinitely. You know, and now my life is there. My friends are there. My personal and professional communities are there. And so there's nothing pulling me away from Kenya. If there was, I might entertain the call. Um, And I have certainly loved in the last 10 years or so expanding my professional experience to other countries in the region, to some new places in South Asia, where my learning curve is much steeper now. And, you know, um, that has been a really nice compliment to my base in Kenya. But yeah, I, I feel, you know, quite committed to, to staying. Cool. Okay. I guess we should wrap up, but maybe a final question and possibly it could turn into a couple of related questions is, uh, you've been around, you've experienced a bunch of things. Uh, is there any kind of underrated or valuable life advice that you like to tell people that, um, I haven't yet given you the, you the chance to share? Well, maybe unsurprisingly, based on what I just said about my experiences in Kenya, I would really advise people, particularly those who are interested in global health and development, to spend a substantial amount of time living somewhere other than where you grew up. And this is not only because you learn about new places, as valuable as that is, but really it's because of what you learn about yourself and where you come from. We expect to feel a sense of culture shock when we visit somewhere new, but when you spend long enough, far from home, you get to experience that feeling about your own home place and culture and see it with new eyes. And it helps you understand how much is socially constructed. It helps you see kind of the illogic or the internal contradictions of where you come from. And I think it actually really helps to develop this scout mindset, you know, that Julia Galef talks about. The ability to observe and question what you take for granted as true or obvious or normal, right? And in this line of work in particular, I think it's really critical for us to approach other cultures and institutions with the presumption that they probably have some of their own internal logic and it's incumbent upon us to try and understand it. And that conversely, we have lots of views and assumptions that are not necessarily logical or true, and that we should really be willing to question them. Yeah. Anything else? Well, I will just end by sharing one of my favorite stories about this very topic. Some of the work I did in my earliest days in Kenya was running study abroad programs for American high school and college students in Kenya. And, you know, not surprisingly, they, as I was when I first came to Kenya, were always kind of very interested in the exotic, right? I mean, that's kind of what attracts us. And so, you know, I would often get questions, especially if we were visiting a rural area about, you know, tribal dances or ethnic practices or things like this. Okay. And so one of my very favorite things to do with groups of students in talking about, you know, cultural practices and quote, tribal traditions is I would say, well, you know, everybody has tribal dances and they would say, well, you know, everybody but us, right? It's the equivalent (laughs) of like everyone else has an accent and I speak normally, right? And so I would say, no, 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 absolutely everyone has tribal dances and everyone would be very, you know, uh, suspect of this. And so I'd say, okay, everybody get up, 
stand in a circle, okay, and everybody would get up and stand in a circle, and then I would say, you put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. And of course, everybody knows the hokey pokey, right? And what is the hokey pokey if not an American tribal dance, right? And so this was always one of my favorite examples to kind of get people to think about this very issue that we're talking about. We all have culture. We all have bias. We all are exotic. We're all irrational, right? And being able to see your own place through those eyes, I think really helps us develop a sense of inquisitiveness and truth-seeking about the world um, that I think is very valuable. My guest today has been Karen Levy. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Just before we go, I wanted to let you know about a free service that some of you out there might, might be interested in. They're called Virtual Programs, and they're not run by us at 80,000 Hours, but rather the folks over at effectivealtruism.org. They're basically short online courses that give the opportunity for anyone, no matter where they're located in the world, to engage intensively with the ideas around effective altruism through a combination of books, videos, podcasts, exercises, and also in particular, weekly small group discussions. Each program lasts eight weeks and you would have weekly one-hour chats with a group of three to five fellow participants and one facilitator. Uh, before each of those discussions, you'd spend roughly two hours completing a bunch of readings and sometimes doing a brief exercise. There's currently three different courses on offer. There's the Precipice Reading Group, the Introductory EA Program, and an In-Depth EA Program. New groups start out each month and the next round of programs is going to run from April 4th to May 29th with applications for that closing pretty soon on March 27th. If you enjoy this show and would like to actually talk seriously with other people around the world who share your interests, then these virtual programs might just help to fill a, uh, a little gap in your life. You can find out more at effectivealtruism.org slash virtual hyphen programs. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.